Hey, listeners. Uh, this one is a l- bit of a longer podcast. It clocks in at three hours, so I know that's a lot to invest in a single podcast, so I thought it would be uh, better if I describe it a little bit first before you decide to jump in. Uh, I had a really thorough conversations with our friends Andre Domis, who is a contributing editor at McLean's, uh, as well as Adam Hudson, journalist and host of the Real Sankara Hours podcast, uh, about some of the similarities we have found in racial experiences as between Asian and black people. Broadly, we spoke a lot about how there isn't a singular experience of being black or Asian, but that it's a, uh, it's a little universe of experiences unto itself with a lot of internal tensions and antagonisms. Uh, so it's not just simply about who we are in relative distance to the default standard of white. And I think that is uh, unfortunately uh, the dominant frame by which race is discussed. So I think if there were to be a single theme for me to draw out of this discussion, I think it was about how class difference within the racial group or within the racial experience are of paramount importance, but that liberals and leftists alike, and not just white, but also in-group, seem perpetually unable to articulate and address it. And speaking of white people, we talk a lot about some shared observations uh, about them, which also cuts against this idea that, quote, only white people get to be individuals. Uh, Anyway, sorry for the lack of time discipline on this one, but I didn't want to cut off what was a really good conversation, and I didn't want to edit out a lot of it because I thought uh, all of it kind of flowed together into a singular conversation. So again, apologies for the long podcast. And so here it is. Escape from Plan A. All right, welcome to Escape from Plan A. Uh, this is your host, Teen. I've got two special guests with me. Andre Domais, who we has been on before to to talk with us. It's good to oh, have I gotta, Andre I gotta, on, I, as always. Last time I had to give you a bly, but this time I got to say something. It's Demise. Demise. Sorry about that. And <laughs> Andre Domise. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not a big last name kind of person. <laughs> no, it's all person. good. I, I get the same. I do the same thing. I'm sorry. Yeah. And and also, uh, Adam, who's the first time on uh, the hey. pod. You, Adam, hey, how's it going, man? Do you want to just tell us a little bit about Real Sankara Hours, your podcast and everything, and just let the people know who you are? Sure. Yeah. My name's Adam Hudson. Um, I, I've been a freelance journalist since 2012. Uh, my work has appeared in Truthout, Alternate, other publications, and Real Sankara Hours. Yeah. My co-host, Peter M. Gunn, and I uh, started a pan-African leftist slash Marxist slash socialist podcast uh, we named it after Thomas Sankara, who um, was a very famous African revolutionary. If you're familiar with the country Burkina Faso, he literally renamed the country from French Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, which means land of upright men. So yeah, Real Sankara hours we've been, um, mostly we talk about politics, domestic politics, international politics, um, also race, black politics, culture. We uh, read and discuss theory um, as well. We talk about music as well because we're both musicians um, and we were briefly in a band together at one point a couple years ago. Um, but yeah, like we're basically a, um, a black leftist uh, podcast. Great. Uh, it's first I've heard of it. So it's like kind of cool to have something to, uh, to kind of listen, like go through the episodes and everything. Um, I, Andre and I have been talking a little bit just on on just just chatting online 
And uh, one thing I noticed was that there, uh, for, for whatever reason, like it seems like there's just some political accelerant going on. I mean, of course, there's mm-hmm. the pandemic. Yeah. Of course, there's Trump as a sort of general background phenomenon. Whatever it is, at my age, I'm 41, I have noticed that there is definitely an accelerating factor to the political timeline of what's going on in America. Mm-hmm. I think that's without doubt. And that I've also noticed that um, there seems to be new uh, bases to have conversations with people uh, about race, but grounded in other in in a different in a different base, right? Mm, and so right. I felt like socialism, whatever that means, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to try and use it in a in a in a uh, clearly defined way here, but that the sort of vague notion of socialism is something that a lot of people have been talking about lately. And I started hearing uh, more about, for example, Andre talking about Pan African socialism, which right. I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about that. Um, and so. I wanted to maybe have a conversation where we could understand what Pan-African socialism is Mm. and how to distinguish that maybe from what we call uh, democratic, you know, like the Demsoc movement and stuff. I mean, these are all very obvious distinctions, but let's start with the obvious. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, it's. I mean, I get mixed up on them half the time myself, the the Sock Dem and the the Demsoc and the the Radlib and... It's like all, all of these things really don't mean much to most people. And I think sometimes that like, especially if you're an online uh, milieu, like if you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook, whatever, and you're getting into these like long ass arguments that are uh, in, in, like bounded with words like social Democrat and the difference between that and the democratic socialist to, to the average observer. They're like, what the fuck are you talking yeah, about? I it's just, just cr- listen, it's I just like, want, I want healthcare. Can you, can you just give me healthcare? And well, it's, it sounds like a bunch of just grad students yelling over whatever the fuck you know what I yeah, mean? like yeah. once, once it gets to that level i'm totally guilty of it myself like don't don't get me <laughs> wrong i have completely gotten into these like sectarian arguments uh and i'm gonna try and withdraw from that a little bit but the same can kind of happen when you talk about quote-unquote black nationalism but the the the, the problem mm-hmm. with that though because you know there was a huge like uh, online uh brouhaha over what black nationalism is and whether people should be afraid of it, which I will say was probably my fault because I saw something that I could have just let go, but I didn't. And <laughs> as, is, <laughs> as, is, as is common to my character. Yeah. 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 So there was this, this, this huge blow up over like, oh, what black nationalism is, but I think it was actually kind of, it was healthy in a way because um, we've, it, I, we've mostly fallen away from the black radical tradition. I was actually just yeah. I was talking to my brother. Um, I was, I was, I, my brother was helping me with some housework and, um, in the, in the drive over in the car, we we're having a conversation about Afrocentric schools in Ontario. So in Ontario, Canada, we have an Afrocentric or a couple of Afrocentric schools. And, um, the, the issue that we had with the creation of the schools in the first place, I didn't know how to really articulate it back when the schools first opened up. I was in my twenties, but now that I'm, you know, hurtling towards 40, uh, I can, I can understand what the, what the, the problem was. And that is the pedagogy of like the modern education system doesn't lend itself to the content that's needed to teach young black kids Yep. what they need to know about their own history about their mm-hmm. uh, about about the multitude of philosophies it doesn't exist it's the maybe the pedagogical structure can stay intact and this is actually a problem that uh you know like 
revolutionary countries in the past have had to run into is we're going to keep the, we're going to keep the bureaucratic structure. We're going to keep the mode of teaching, but what is it that they're actually teaching? And so if you have, if you have an Afrocentric school and you separate uh, black kids out from the, uh, the remainder of, uh, of, 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 children in the community and you're teaching them specifically maybe you can teach them a little bit about black history here and there maybe you can get them to know uh, personalities like uh, nelson mandela and and martin luther king etc but it's it's a watered down version of what's supposed to be a very strong well-bounded uh and almost sacred tradition of um oral history passed along from one generation to the next so if an afrocentric school doesn't have that strong oral history that tells all of our history then it's not really afrocentric it's just black kids in a separate school if i may uh oh wait uh, if i may interject just to uh because i want to address your answer teen about the, um those different currents you're talking about like dem sock versus sock dem I almost want to say sock puppet when I hear sock down because sock is just like, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm, I think like, I mean, for I'll just, just like the, probably the most simple way I can explain what socialism is, is basically, um, a political ideology that basically favors one workers controlling the means of production instead of having a boss control the means of production and the, and the factor in the workplace, there's workers ownership over the workplace. And then also, um, in opposition or a critique of the private market system to allocate resources. So I think like those are two like very important tenets of socialism. And when we're talking about like dem- s- social democracy, like really like particularly when you're looking at the Scandinavian model or like a lot of European models, this is social democracy doesn't get rid of capitalism is basically like a medium between like, it's really, in the truest sense of the word, it's the most moderate version of socialism, which is basically capitalism with a large social safety net. That's basically what social democracy is. And then once you get further, it's like, okay, we don't want capitalism, period. We're going to have a new economic model of, of way of distributing resources. Um, so that gets further into other tenets of socialism to full-on communism or anarcho-communism. So I think when, when people talk about socialism, I think like I think those are two really important things to keep in mind is one critiquing or just straight up opposing um the profit motive and the private market system as a way of allocating resources and two favoring uh workers controlling the means of production and even public ownership so like for example let's say um you know when it comes to the government bailing out the airline industry well one socialist way to do it would be like oh would be we'll just nationalize it because if the government's going to keep bailing out the airline industry and it keeps failing and, and if and if they're going to have most of the money that they get that they're that is handed to them through a bailout to be used for stock buybacks then one argument is like okay well the government should have equity in an industry which would mean the government would basically own the airline industry, if you see airlines as a critical part of national infrastructure. So I just wanted to, I wanted to like kind of just just set that up because I think like when all these kinds of like internal left wing debates that I've spent, I'm very familiar with left wing internal left wing debates just being years within a left. But I think for others who are um, maybe unfamiliar, like what you know, what the fuck is going on? It's just basically like some people want capitalism but just a large social safety net hence all the less bernie sanders basically like that's why he was always referring to scandinavian countries because they just have like capitalism with a large social safety net other people are like no we just want we want to get rid of capitalism period 
So I just, yeah, I just wanted to kind of interject and sort of yeah, that's situate. that's very that's very helpful. I mean, it almost sounds like in that sense, before we agree on any specifics as to how socialism applies to a particular, like say to the, to the United States in 2020, it's almost directional in that sense, right? It's almost like yeah. like a like a term like North, like we can point towards socialism, but. There's not a necess- that's not necessarily a clear. Well, there is no end goal in social democratic politics that that uh, that ends in socialism. It's a form of democratic politics that is, uh, you know, includes strong safety nets, et cetera, like Adam uh, just mentioned. But the the terminal point is just a a fairer form of capitalism, but it's still capitalism, and it's it's almost yeah, like right. it's it's you know it's uh, fucking for virginity, it's bombing for peace, it's all that <laughs> shit. <laughs> Yeah. The okay. So the with with that, I mean, that's thanks for that. I, with that established, um, what I'm really curious about is how does, and this is the thing that has always for me been missing in the discussions in the quote American left uh, when you when you talk to like um, Dem socks etc. or whatever you want to call the groups. Uh, one that I've found, at least in New York City, they're very white dominated. And two, I, I've yep. personally found that their understanding of race in America is not that different than what you would just call a liberal. Yep. No, no. That, and, that, yeah, and the worst part is they'll, they will turn around when, because when you explain to them like, Hey, we have our own socialist histories. We have socialist, we have had socialist revolutions in countries that we come from uh, or that our parents came from. It, it, people see, and this is why I was talking about uh, the Afrocentric schools or, or giving that example, because the uh, the history of black radical politics has pretty much been washed out. Like I was, I was explaining to my brother, like, yeah. you know, there were there were plenty of black communists in the late 19th and early 20th century. There was a movement of black communists. But because that history has been uh, scrubbed away uh, from our um, from our brains uh, through the education system, through mass media, etc., um, and and I said that it was uh, an unfortunate consequence of, of integration. Integration wasn't actually in- integration; it was assimilationism. And what that meant yeah. is that the more radical aspects of Black history had to be done away with for the purpose of the greater good or for uh, for peace between races or whatever but the problem with that uh, the problem with that is that you encounter uh these like these white people on the ostensible left and they act like we don't have any histories either because they've never heard anything about it they don't understand anything about african or about black revolutionary history so they think that they have to explain socialism to us when it's like no we no we we know our own histories like granted a lot of it's been taken away from from us in, in school etc but if you know that the black panthers exist then you like th- the entry point of knowing about the black panthers is an avenue to understanding black radical politics is an avenue to knowing that yes there were like black com- communists uh uh from from africa that were being trained in schools in moscow uh that went back and fomented revolution at home to like throw off the colonial yoke like that was the thing so- that happened you know, Thomas the Black, Sankara. The Black Panther. Yeah. Oh, well, Thomas for, Sankara yeah. was one of them. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. Exactly. And it kind of dovetails with the Real Sankara Hours podcast. But uh, one thing I wanted to mention was, you know, uh, the uh, the Black Panthers ten point program. This is something that people just don't often connect the dots on. The ten point program is basically juche. Like, it's not. It's 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 basically just uh, repurposed, uh, remixed. Um, for fomenting revolution in America. So you don't have to explain to us what any of that means. We already know. But they assume that if there's any sort of pushback or if there's any sort of... uh they kind of see it as like race first politics. And really what it is, is no, right. you're, you're just a racist. Right. You're being a racist piece of shit. And we know from our own histories and we we don't have to actually tolerate this, like tolerate 
people making racial slurs or tolerate this this fetishism of the uh, the hayseed uh, hillbilly elegy white working class that maybe if you just like I don't know say if you have this like the the right keyword you're going to like activate the uh, the socialist revolution because all of these white working class people are going to like you know throw down their their coal miner buckets and rise up in, in, in unison. It's like no, you don't. You don't have the answers, but there have been movements in the past, and guess who led them? That's that's really what gets on my nerves. Right, and and I think that it almost seems to me that the the paradigm. I mean, okay, it almost seems to me like the paradigm for the white left in America, uh, in a sense, is 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 still determined by electoral politics in the in in the way that say swing votes in Ohio or Michigan are determinative of Bernie Sanders chances at that time right and so mm-hmm. we had to talk about the we had to talk about you know socialism through the lens of the white voter yeah. uh, who didn't who didn't show up for Hillary uh, in Ohio, they're fundamentally playing the same game, but yeah. saying like, "Look, we this is the this is the quote uh, tip of the spears are are these voters," and like, when I say that they're no different than liberals it, when it comes to race, is this belief that look, you have no other options. What are you going to do? Not yeah. vote for a Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. So I just didn't see there to be any meaningful difference. And you're right; I've noticed a lot of this notion of. Uh, class first, that race yep. is a pertinent, to cl- it's secondary to class in some respect. And I've never really, uh, it just about, always. Think about how that sounds. Like if you yeah. turn if you turn that around, think about how that sounds. And I hear that one a lot. It's like, well, you know, what else are you going to do? It, it, really what it's like is like, man, black people, we're really fucking you up, aren't we? Like we just, we're being utter pieces of shit to you. My God, your lives are miserable. We really dominated the shit out of you. Right. Here's an right. option. Well, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually um, so I've been thinking about this a lot too because I um, like my own politics because uh, I grew up so I grew I was born in Oakland and I was raised in the East Bay in a, this town called Pittsburgh, California, and my milieu growing up was largely like white people were the minority where I grew up. Like most of the people I grew up around were working class blacks latinos and asians a lot of whom were filipino so and then i went to stanford university which is the complete opposite very very white very elitist uh and so seeing that kind of class divide i did get interested in in marx because marxism as a theory and as a heuristic helps you understand how capitalism functions but if you're black or if you're a person of color um Marxism as a theory is incomplete because when it comes to issues of like white supremacy, colonialism, it's it there's a there's a lot to be desired. Um, and so, like when I was getting politicized back in the early two thousands, um, I was reading Howard Zinn, but I was also reading um, one of my favorite books is uh, the autobiography of um, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. And for for those of you who don't know, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was uh, black politician from Harlem. And he was also very close friends with Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King. And so in terms of my political evolution, I took what I needed from Marx, but I still had an intellectual tradition that was still steeped in black politics and black intellectual history that emphasized 
black pride, black unity, and basically a middle finger to white supremacy. Um, and and when you look at, I think the the black intellectual and political tradition throughout the diaspora, like there always has been like this struggle against slavery, colonialism, and white supremacy. And I, I want to bring up this quote by Amokar Cabral from The Weapon of Theory. And it, it really gets to what we're talking, it gets exactly to what, what we're talking about. So he says, um, this leads us to pose the following question. Does history begin only with the development of the phenomenon of class and consequently of class struggle? Um, and then he goes on, you know, basically, it, you know, if we were to accept that premise, he says, it would also be to consider, and this we refuse to accept, that various human groups in Africa, Asia, and Latin America were living without history or, out, or outside history at the time when they were subjugate, subjugated to the yoke of imperialism. It would be to consider that the peoples of our countries, such as the Balantes of Guinea, uh, the Caminas um, of Angola, and the Macondes of Mo- Mozambique, are still living today. If we abstract the slight influence of colonialism to which they have been subjected outside history or that they have no history. And basically, so to sum that up, basically, if you go into like any white left dominated space, their whole conception of history and political struggle really begins in Europe, essentially, because Marx was writing about the class struggle in Europe. So if you're applying that narrative of history to, let's say, if if you're Asian or if you're Latino, if you're black your history is different because you're starting from a very, very different political and historical starting point. So what Cabral is saying is basically, if you just emphasize the class struggle, that st- when you start at that point, you're basically saying, okay, anyone who existed before the class struggle doesn't really have a history. And so when you look at capitalism, the way it developed, capitalism was built by slavery. So the transatlantic, the transatlantic slave trade built the foundation for capitalism if you want if you want one good example um go to wall street there's like there's a museum and there's even a gravesite of uh, dead african slaves wall street was actually a former slave trading market that doesn't get talked about enough but basically like you know there's a lot of hit, uh, literature to show that slavery built capitalism so and this is where i i and i think this is get, getting to a, a very important ontological distinction that like a lot of white leftists, because when they emphasize class, what they're really saying is that like their historical framework starts with the beginning of capitalism. It's basically like, okay, everything, the reason why shit is so fucked up here is because capitalism started. But if you're black, slavery started before capitalism. So you see what I'm saying? So it's like, and I think that that's, 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 that's a very important distinction to make that like, I think even a lot of white leftists in these spaces, that's something that, they're either a unaware of or b they don't care. But I do think like if you're a non-white leftist or radical or anyone who's interested in, in those kinds of politics, what's important to understand is that like your political struggle is very very different than that of the white working class because there are a lot of white working class people who are fine with slavery. You know, even if they didn't own slaves, they still benefited from the system of white supremacy during the days of slavery and during the days of Jim Crow. And some of them were totally fine with enforcing it, even if they didn't own slaves, because, you know, at that time it's like, okay, we may not own slaves, but we don't want to be, we're still above black people and also still above native Americans. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get, I, I, I feel that in the sense that 
when, for example, because there is so much focus on the Rust Belt right now and the disenfranchised industrial white middle class that has been supposedly gutted uh, through, um, you know, capital moving abroad to find the cheapest labor spots, etc. There is a tendency, I think, to glorify the white working class that has been lost. And in my mind, I'm like, these are the same people that killed Vincent Chin. Right. Like mm. it's hard for me in a sense mm. to see it that way, that we need to mm-hmm. restore the the it almost feels like in a sense, because like you said, their class analysis may begin with Marx. But I think in America, it also tends to say, oh, there was um, there was a real sort of tip into the workers. Uh, let's take another example. There was a real tip towards the rights of workers under Franklin Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And that when the New Deal came out, that there was a real, you know, potential pro-worker meaning to liberalism at that time. It was very different liberalism back then than we have now. Yeah. And I'm like, this is, you know, Franklin. And I, it's weird because you see a lot of people saying Bernie is the new FDR. And I'm like, you realize <laughs> FDR is was more of a white nationalist than Trump. And he implemented the uh, Japanese internment. That was his yeah. policy. Mm-hmm. That and when you read some was, of the things that he said about race, it's it's it would be horrifying. Like yeah. if you were to, it was shocking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, and the thing is that um, you know he he's the same FDR that uh, turned Jewish people away when they tried yes. to flee yeah. uh, the the violence of Germany. So it was yeah. actually kind of shocking to me actually that uh, that uh, the DSA types leaned in that hard on FDR when it's like, do you understand that you know the National Labor Relations Act when that was passed. That excluded 60% of black workers. So the, uh, the National Labor Relations Act basically established the right of, uh, of workers to unionize, uh, established what the labor protections were, uh, the, you know, the right to collective bargaining and so on, which we take for granted. But there were a couple of major exclusions. Uh, domestic workers, i.e. people who worked inside of other people's homes and agricultural workers or certain. Agri- so if you're working out in the fields, you weren't covered. Well, guess where most black people were working in people's homes and in the fields. The AFL, uh, AFL deliberately excluded black workers because they were so damn racist. So the idea that like uh, th- that, uh, you know, veneration of FDR is supposed to like be endearing to black people, even though he did have many black people. Uh, in his, he had black people in his uh, his bureaucracy. He had, he had black people uh, that were administrators that worked on his campaign, etc. But the the deal that black workers got, uh, both under under the New Deal um, and uh, through the uh, the the opening stages of World War II, uh, it was atrocious. Like your average black worker didn't, and and I know people who are like devotees of say Adolf Fried might disagree with me. Uh, and and say that well you know product of the time and all that but i just and and also that uh you know his his wife eleanor roosevelt uh tries to pass an anti-lynching law and he wouldn't even support it and i'm just like okay sure i i guess you might say product of the time but at the same time don't try to tell me this is somebody that i should look up to yeah yeah and yeah i was i'm glad you mentioned eleanor roosevelt because i remember i watched there's this documentary on the roosevelt's i think it's one of the uh Ken Burns documentaries on Netflix. Yeah. yeah and uh, the sense I got from that was Eleanor Roosevelt. She was really the one who was, she was the more progressive than her husband when it came to race. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think even when we, you know, I think when, a lot of those DSA types and those other leftists who um, 
do a retrospective analysis on FDR, I think they're kind of looking at looking at him through rose colored glasses. Yeah. And I think like if if you care about race, I mean, if well, you're going to, I don't think they do. They don't like that's the, right. Yeah. A, a lot of them if, don't. They they see black people as and and you know how I know they don't is and I hate I hate to interrupt, but I I just I don't want to give people credit that is not due to them. And the way that I know that a lot of them don't is after uh you know Bernie lost. Uh, South Carolina uh, yes. to, uh, to Joe Biden. Mm. Yeah, exactly. They were, they, were so, they were so angry and upset and like, well, how can these black people vote against their own interests? Yeah. I mean, don't they know who Joe Biden is? I'm like, okay, so if you've actually ever spoken to a fucking black person over 40 in your entire life, which you, I know you haven't, you only have like black friends because you went to college with them or because you work with them or because they're in the same DSA chapter, but you don't actually really know from black people. Yeah. If, you have, if you have any conversations with black people over the age of 40, you would understand why they would vote for Joe Biden even with that problematic history. And the other thing is, you do that because you view black people entirely through the lens of their own pathologies, not what it is that we want, what it is that we hope for, whatever aspirations are outside of the like how shitty white people treat black people. You don't conceptualize them at all. It's, we're just a tangle of pathologies. And that's always been the case. That's not that's not that's not a recent thing. That, that's right. I heard there was a lot of talk after mm-hmm. South Carolina about how yep. older black voters were uninformed, voting against oh. their interest. Uh, yeah. You know that, and there were some people that were like, maybe we just need to move to move away from primaries altogether because you know. Uh, and it's the same thing that hung uh, Hillary's loss. Wow, we I mean, really made we made a mistake giving them the right to vote, didn't we? Let's just uh, let's yeah. it, let's just skip yeah, the primaries. Exactly, exactly. And I and I feel like and. I mean, I think the, the the frustrating thing for me, though, sometimes is like, okay, it's easy to criticize, and this is something that the that the um, that the Dem socks or whatever can hold over everyone's head is like, okay, well, what are you proposing? Because we have a candidate, we had a viable candidate, you know, like what what do you want to do? And and I think that's a valid point. I mean, I, I can't dismiss the the, the notion though? that Bernie actually got. I, well, there is a validity to it in this sense that I, no, I, I understand that there's a validity to it, but I'm saying t- t- again, tell that to a black person over the age of forty who doesn't actually know Bernie Sanders. Well, also, mm-hmm. I don't like when it. The thing is, uh, we had discussed this a couple episodes ago on our Real Sun Car Hours podcast, but basically, mm-hmm. like, what the thing that frustrated me is like there were. First of all, no one even bothered to talk to black people. Here's the thing is like black people in the United States, we don't all live in South Carolina, but there, there is, I, th- I think there's a very cynical ploy by the Democratic Party to make South Carolina the black people primary. So it's like, okay, forget the black people who live in Oakland or New York or other parts of the country who probably have a different um, political uh, philosophies. No, all black people live. And first of all, also Jim Clyburn, like, I'm, I'm gonna be real like most black people don't give a fuck about jim Clyburn. he was he's mostly irrelevant mm-hmm. in black politics but somehow he became representative and the thing is like we didn't like black people collectively throughout the country didn't choose jim Clyburn to be our microphone the democratic party just propped him up cynically to make it seem like bernie sanders was bad on race the thing that the sanders campaign i think fucked up on is well, I think what they – there are a number of assumptions I think that the Sanders campaign made that turned out to be false. And I think that's why like you know the left just got shellacked so badly. I mean let's just be real. Like the left got his ass kicked. And I think the left has, has to be pretty – should – should be fucking serious about why it lost and not, and not look at itself through rose-colored glasses. And I think one of the – one of the problems was that um, – Black politics, for the most part, doesn't really exist in the sense that there's no 
organized, independent black political voice. The only black politics that does exist gets sucked up into the nonprofit sector, corporate media, the Democratic Party, and academia, all of which don't really represent black people and that, also have, have conservative – yeah. Oh, very sorry. Cons- that's kind of an elitist sector, right? Like what you yeah, just said very, there. Very, very elitist and very conservative. And so someone like Jim Clyburn, he's just a black politician. But the thing is, he's more of just a Democrat. Like most black politicians are just Democratic politicians. Like there really is no fundamental difference between someone like, let's say, Jim Clyburn and Nancy Pelosi. Like, like they're, they're like these guys, these a lot of these black political leaders are just democratic standard democrats they're not actually so so there's that and also i think like when it comes to the masses of regular black people i don't think black people are like super in love with joe biden this is another thing that kind of got on my nerves i saw this from liberals is that like yeah joe biden he just knows how to talk to black people he's got like i saw some dumbass tweet like someone said like yeah like well, joe biden he he seems kind of black doesn't he it's like <laughs> joe joe biden is based i mean we we said this on our podcast was, was that a white joe, person or a black person who said that I it was think. not a black it was a woman of color i forget oh, it's, I, my god but it's, oh but i know who you're talking about oh yeah. jesus christ Basic, can basically, I, I, Joe, Bi- yeah. Joe Biden is basically a plantation owner who knows how to talk to his slaves. That's that's Joe Biden. Like he's a very disgusting person. But the thing is, is um, uh, the thing is, is, I think the masses of black people, I think what's important to consider. And I think this is where the Sanders campaign messed up is that there's a variety of opinions. So you have a lot of young black voters here, who are like. Now I know a guy. His name was his his name was his his uh his 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 name was uh uh T T Bone Matthews popcorn. <laughs> and I tell you, he he knew how to work a cotton genie jack. Did he ever? I mean, yeah. With well, he could work two at the same time. Even you know one one with one hand and one foot, and the other hand the other hand and the other foot. And I tell you, he had a he had a doll like a fucking hammer. And if you wheeled that third cotton genie up to him, he could operate that shit. It was prehensile like a monkey's tail, like. but the 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 other assumptions i just want to make i want to make this point because i think there are two things that the sanders campaign and i think overall liberals overlooked is that because black politics in terms of political organization amongst regular black people right um black people who don't spend all their time on twitter and like just regular black people have to work hard. The ones who have to work as essential workers who are grocery workers, like regular, normal, I would say black working class because it's like most of black America is largely working class. So even when we talk about working class, most black people are mostly like working class to lower middle class. So I think when it comes to the opinions of regular black people, it's, it's all over the place. You can't really pin it in a neat little box. So I think the Biden voters in South Carolina, I don't know if it was a love of Biden or more of like, we trust this guy to get rid of Trump, which goes into the other assumption that the Sanders campaign messed up on is that I think they really underestimated the degree of just anti-Trump sentiment. And they didn't make the case that Sanders is the guy to beat Trump. So I think when people started voting for Biden, I think it was just like, you know, I don't, I don't, because I don't think most black people, like if you were to give them, give them Biden's platform, they'd be like, yeah, I totally agree with like, um, nobody knows what his platform is. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think it's, it's it's basically, yeah, I think most people and not even just black people, but most regular Americans are looking at Biden as like, okay, he's the guy to defeat Trump because that's what 
that's where the mood of the country largely is because people hate Trump. That's the most, I mean, before pre uh, COVID is. So I think like when black South Carolinians voted for Biden, I think there was like, okay, we probably trust, we trust this guy more to defeat Trump. And so I think like there are just a number of flawed assumptions about black voters that like white leftists and liberals make because they don't bother to look at black people's regular people with a, 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 range of complex uh political beliefs and, and political inclinations and i that's actually you know and, and and i think that goes towards uh a kind of view of electoral politics as as damage mitigation not not mm. so much we mm-hmm. want to vote for the you know the the man who who knows how to kiss black babies like clinton did or right. whatever but <laughs> right. there was a there was an article in the nation by e- eli mistal 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 about how exactly what you said that uh, that that all this notion that these black voters in, in in South Carolina were you know lack information no it's actually and if you, you if you you went there like he did and talked to people you would understand they didn't have any faith that white like just exactly what you said they didn't have yeah. any faith that white voters would back Sanders and so yeah mm-hmm. I feel like that's actually a very sort of insightful way of yeah. playing that's kind of 3d chess in a way to say, yeah. Uh, okay, you're telling me I can get everything with this uh, Sanders guy, but you know he's not going to win because yeah, we know how things really work in terms of mm-hmm. how the country votes. And they, you know, I think they were probably right. I don't yeah. think Sanders was nearly as strong a candidate as it seemed. Uh, no, he he wasn't. You know. And and mm-hmm. also like Glenn Greenwald had a really good piece, but like um, it was about non-voters. But like so so before the whole this whole quarantine shit, uh, I. I taught um, at a community college. So a lot of my students are mostly low-income black, Latino, and, and Asian students. So um, even, so sometimes I would talk to my students about politics, like when, you know, when it comes up and um, this, the mood, the overall mood that I got amongst the student students is that they're either pro Bernie Sanders or they don't believe in the system because you know, if you're living in a place like Richmond, California, which has an oil refiner, uh, oil an oil refinery, Chevron, which is so poisonous that like you can basically be born with asthma when you're a kid um, living in Richmond. So if you're living with like environmental pollution, institutional racism, um, deep generational poverty, not just like poverty, 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 but like generations long poverty, right? And there are so many pockets of Black America that are like this. So if if that's where you're growing up. And you see nothing is getting better for you. The schools constantly suck. There's violence, there's poverty, and you don't really see a way out. When you engage a political system, you're going to be cynical, which makes a lot of sense. And I think, especially with Black people's history here, going all the way back to slavery, that cynicism, uh, it it gets manifested in different ways. Like It can either be like uh, not voting, and that Greenwald piece is basically showing that most non-voters are people of color and low income and also have um, uh, usually like lower education. So that was one thing I felt like people miss out is that like, what about black people who don't vote? Like, especially if Sanders is running an insurgent campaign, those are the people you want to talk to. Because if you talk to those people who are rightfully jaded with the system, they'd be the most susceptible to Sanders' message. But I don't think the Sanders campaign, as far as I know anyway, I don't. It didn't seem like that was really. Part I will of their tell you that I, if I, based on my interactions and conversations with some of these DSA types, 
I would never fucking like if I was to uh, I, I graduated high school in uh, in South Florida. I would never send them into the neighborhood where I went to school to go talk to black yeah. folks about you out of your yeah. mind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. it's that, it's that condescension. It's that, uh, like the, uh, the chauvinism as if we don't have like histories and philosophies of our own. Now, granted, like I did open up by saying much, a lot of that has been stripped away from us, but we still understand the vestiges. For example, you know, when we celebrate Kwanzaa, you know, one of the, uh, the tenets of Kwanzaa is Ujamaa and granted, I mm-hmm. have my very strong feelings about, uh, 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 Paul Karenga, I have, yeah, I have mm-hmm. my very strong feelings about Kwanzaa being a complete bastardization and watering down of African philosophies. But one of the philosophies in, in or around one of the tenets of Kwanzaa is what was it, uh, community, uh, community well-being? Yeah, uh, but it's, it's called Ujamaa. Now Ujamaa was a political philosophical book written by Julius Nyerere, who was the uh, the, uh, the the president of uh, Tanzania. And in this book, and it's like, it's right there. It's right there in this book. It says, okay, it says, in the individual, as in the society, it is an attitude of mind which distinguishes the socialist from the non-socialist. It has nothing to do with the possession or non-possession of wealth. Destitute people can be potential capitalists or exploiters of the Mm. human beings. But a millionaire can equally well be a socialist. He may value his wealth only because it can be used in service of his fellow men. Like, he understood this stuff intrinsically. And he talked about uh, um, the ne- like the there's no necessity to really go to Africa or go to diasporic Africans or go to black people and explain how socialism works. He's like, but this exists intrinsically in our society. He says, for yeah. when a society is so organized that it cares about its individuals, then provided he's willing to work, no individual within that society should worry about what will happen to him tomorrow if he does not hoard wealth today. Like this stuff is in our DNA. It's it's mm-hmm. so if I was to have some DSA person try to go to explain, um, you know, universal healthcare, but also you know our foreign policy. Uh, yeah, drone strikes probably gonna still happen. I know your family comes from Sudan, but unfortunately, or yeah, not a lot we can do about Haiti. But you know, which I was, I was in uh, Lake Worth, Florida, right? Where there's a, a tremendous population of Haitians there. Like, yeah, and I just feel bad about Haiti and everything, but uh, no, we're, we're not actually gonna pay them any kind of reparations or you know work with them to like rebuild the country under the socialist vision that they had for themselves. I can't send, I can't send these people to have conversations with black folk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah, because uh, there's, yeah, there is a level of condescension, and and you know, um, let's just say, it. I mean, it's not, a lot of it is racism. I mean, let's, I, I think there is like a lot of internalized racism within the left that because the, the left likes to act like it's um, that they're like there's this kind of kumbaya kind of going on that like oh well yeah, that's yeah. right which is a yeah. very liberal notion right and that's yeah. <laughs> i think that's the thing that really bugs me is because there is i think liberalism i think that a proper left needs to have is needs to be structured around a critique around liberalism sometimes i think it's it's often like structured around a critique around trump and um and that's kind of obvious though but i think liberalism you know one of the problems i've seen as in like in I think one of the things that as an Asian person, Asian American person, Chinese American person that I see is there is a the you know when they say race or cl- or class like do is class identity does that trump racial identity and all this stuff. It just it doesn't make sense to me because I'm like there is a class identity within Chinese Americans. There is a class division within Chinese Americans, which is unique to us. It's different than 
it it it's similar to it rhymes with but is different in the particulars of say the white work of the, the white class division in the sense that for example there's not many chinese in rural areas so this is not a rural versus urban divide in fact a lot of times it's chinese communities in inner city areas versus chinese communities in richer suburban areas that's our class divide and we have ethnic divisions like we have you know uh people coming from certain parts of china that that come here to take jobs in restaurants and things like that and then their children versus people who came from other parts of china or taiwan that came here for phds and their children went to harvard or whatever you know like it's there is a there is a class division within the chinese american population here but what i've noticed is that there's almost nobody from the quote Chin- the, from the exploited classes of Chinese Americans that has a voice in any of these movements. They're ignored for the most part. It's usually a liberal-based kind of system of representation where if you get one Chinese person, regardless of where they're from, and they're almost always super educated, uh, works within, you know, they're they're they they're, they work within the legal or lobbying or, you know, whatever professional system to get where they were. But because they're Chinese or Asian, they can speak for the interests of, you know, they could, they could kind of show that we're bringing together a multicultural, uh, the, 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 the image of a multicultural coalition. But then I go online and I'm like, it's not working. Like people are not buying into this. Uh, you know what I mean? It's kind of, it, it's not really reaching the the masses of voters, and they're not like I, I don't know anybody that's really getting fired up over, like, uh, electoral, over this electoral politics. I don't think was ever meant to reach the masses of the people. Electoral politics, true, true. Electoral yeah. politics exists to uh, pull in the most likely voter, uh, like the most uh, likely motivated voter, um, and the people who uh, their vision and mission, I guess, like aligns with political donors. So the people who are going to like watch the spectacle of American politics as a game and not the cut and thrust of American politics as a proxy for how their own like lives, their own lives and material circumstances turn out. So I'm thinking, for example, of like people who were really big on Hillary Clinton in 2016, like what are their lives like? Uh, probably pretty good. I, I know that I know plenty of people that refused to go vote period because it was Hillary Clinton. And if you had them have a conversation with a liberal, they probably would have been called a misogynist because they don't want to see a woman president. They probably would have been called uh, some kind of a chauvinist, but I, the, the, the non-voters that I know from 2016, uh, their lack of participation or the refusal to participate because they'd already been uh, almost like excluded from the system excluded from participation, excluded from the body politic, the way that uh, their their relationship to the Democratic Party isn't a relationship of like uh, equals. They're not seeing eye to eye as equals or peers. It's basically like you owe us, you owe us something. And they know that like they, they get whenever you hear like, uh, you know, vote blue no matter who or, you know, a, a vote for, um, a, you know, a non-vote is a vote for Donald Trump. The subtext of that is you owe us like we we go out and supposedly fight for you because we talk about how important we find the your issues. Uh, we talk about how much we are, you know, we talk about how much the people that pay us 
uh, to to turn uh, this country into a corporatocracy, we talk about how much their vision and mission has fucked you up. And so because we're paying attention to you, you owe it to us to vote for us so that we can, I don't know, care about it publicly some more. And I think the Obama presidency is almost entirely to blame for this, where they go on this like this speaking tour to black community centers, to black churches. And everyone by now is just familiar with the trope of the Pookie, uh, the Pookie and Ray Ray speech. Which is really just like this really, uh, it, it's, it's Bill Cosby, uh, Bill Cosby's pound cake speech, except delivered with an uneven cadence. So when you go out to community centers and you, you tell people that, you know, there's that, that uh, young men need to step up and fathers need to step up, it completely betrays the reality that, for example, like when they talk about uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, teen pregnancy and they talk about, uh, you know, fathers needing to be there for their children is entirely betrayed by the fact that, uh, pregnancy among young women in, in black communities is falling so rapidly that it's dragging down the like the entire women demographic in the country. It's 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 falling the fastest. Black uh, young black girls uh, who get pregnant as teenagers, where they are now is where white girls were back in the late nineties. Now were, were people talking about an epidemic, like an actual plague, like just white girls getting pregnant because they can't control themselves. I mean, sure, there was a problem with teen pregnancy across races, but you didn't see um, young white girls getting pathologized like that. Well, that's where young black girls are at now. But he was still having those conversations about things like teen pregnancy as if this was, you know, 1994. The other the other part is when you talk about um, uh, the, uh, the state of, for example, black fatherhood, you it's like people are holding two different ideas in their head at the same time. This idea of like the absent, uh, the deadbeat black father, but then celebrating black fathers for being involved with their children. Like these two things can't be true at the same time, but they make them, they make them true because it serves their political project, which is black people don't actually deserve to ask for things like you don't as a voting block as probably as, as the most important voting block that the Democrats have, because without the black vote, you just don't win. You don't actually have the right to ask for anything. Fix your shit first and then come to us. But for the time being, we'll we'll implement some policies that hopefully will cause you to fuck up yourselves and fuck up your communities just a little bit less. And when you get it together, then we can come back and and meet as equals. The thing is, this is a hundred year old story. Like this goes back all the way to Reconstruction. There has never been a shift in democratic politics where uh, any uh, political party, uh, president or office, has been willing to see black voters as uh, not only an important voting block, but their actual peers. It doesn't happen. So I can understand why it is that people look at the uh, the the, uh, the state of electoral politics and say, "Nah, fuck it, I'm tapping out. I ain't doing it." Uh, so yeah. what? Sorry, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, Adam. Uh, yeah, yeah um, I wanted to, uh, Tane. I thought I thought the point about class dynamics within different ethnic communities. I think that's a very poignant point because. Um, I do. I see a similar dynamic within the black community because, uh, I mean, like, you know, like I said, where I grew up, you know, I was raised by a single mother. Uh, my dad is an Amazon worker, uh, which is something I think about now, especially with, uh, you know, the impact that COVID is having on essential workers these days. And especially now, since there's a boycott and, you know, because we're indoors, we have to rely so much on delivery for essential goods, which means extra work for people in Amazon and UPS and postal service. And my mother's a retired public school teacher. But um, even within the black community, this is something that I don't think is talked about enough 
but I think oftentimes the people who claim to speak on behalf of the black community as a whole oftentimes are also disconnected from the masses of regular black people. And I think that's something that's important to talk about. Um, I'm reading this book and I, I want to bring it up because I think it's definitely relevant to this conversation. Um, the It's called Black Bourgeoisie by E. Franklin Frazier. He wrote it in 1957, but it's like, it, it's, it's even, it's still relevant to today, but basically he was, it was, it's a very, it's a good cri- an analysis, but it's also a very blistering critique of the black middle class. But basically when he talks about, about politics and this definitely ties into what I was saying about Jim Clyburn. Um, a lot of the black bourgeoisie slash like upper middle class. I think if you were to t- remove bourgeoisie and apply it today, it'd be like professional managerial class. So like people, you know, who've probably gone to law school and are in professional environments like nonprofits, academia, um, c- consulting, like th- those sorts of jobs. Like you're not super rich, but like you're making enough to be comfortable like i like kind of like the demographics of elizabeth warren voters right mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah so he he was basically saying that the um those because I call them the because LinkedIn left yeah yeah and the thing, the thing is like they have access to media because they're educated and they have access to white dominated institutions like particularly yeah, i mean media. they control me they run media right yeah. i mean i, I would yeah. say that all people who are involved in the Listen, media industry you you, at if, that level yeah, or yeah. in that top, top, uh, yeah. And in that, in that class. Yeah. And what he was saying that I think is even more, is still relevant now is he was saying that group of people acts like they have a lot of power, but they really don't have a lot of power in terms when you measure wealth and things like that. And basically what he said was that I'll, I'll pull up a quote. I think it's, this, this ties in. I'll, I'll just say what he said, but basically he writes, um, since the wealth of the black bourgeoisie is too inconsequential for this class to wield any political power, the role of Negro politicians has been restricted to attempting to satisfy the demands of Negro voters while acting as the servants of the political machines supported by the property classes in the white community. So that like what I was saying about black politicians in the Democratic Party, like they really serve the institution of the democratic party. They don't really serve the black community. And I think there's a difference between, because the interests of the black community, there's an antagonism between that and the, and the, the political interests of the democratic party machine and the Republican party machine, because the democratic party, when you look at the, their particularly funders, donors, the people they're pretty much in bed with, um, large corporations um especially real estate one of my beats as a journalist is uh, gentrification and i've gone i've gone to many city council meetings in oakland in san francisco and a lot there are a lot of there's quite a few non-white politicians when it comes to issues like housing and rent control they'll consistently side with real estate at the expense of the interests of the of their con- constituency a lot of lower income, working class, black, Latino, and Asian people, particularly in the Bay Area, who are being displaced because gentrification is just is just fucking just out it like just insane in the Bay Area. Um, a lot of those politicians will side with real estate, and it's similar with the police too. So, um, so I, I I think that's something that um, is really important to to think about because a lot of when you see on like black media and the black pundit class, 
they sell themselves as representing like this is what black people think. But I think like if you really um, peel beneath the layers, even they themselves are disconnected from the interests and needs of the regular black people. And a lot of times like they're tied to institutions that are responsible for the suffering of the masses of black people, especially, you know, when you talk about like, especially considering democratic politicians, like I don't, I don't think black politicians in the democratic party, I don't think they really serve the interests of black people, but they sell themselves as that. We we call it misleadership at this point, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. There's no, there is no, there is no such thing. I mean, this is, uh, you know, true in Canada. It's, uh, it's, I'm not going to say it's completely true in the UK because there are some, some good politicians out that way, but definitely in the U S and for the most part in Canada, we, we experience what's called a misleadership. That is a a class of, of black people that sort of rely on their race credentials, uh, to, Plead the case that like we're all in this together, you know, we're all in it together, and, and mm-hmm. you need you need people like us to be re- like to represent you, whether it's in city hall, whether it's provincial parliament or state congress, or whether it's in the federal government. You need people like us because we have your best interests at heart. And this, I, I keep saying this to people, like you don't get in and change the system. The system is designed to change you. And everybody, hmm. everybody wants to be. Everybody yeah. wants to be yeah. that one. Yeah. Everyone, yeah. Ha- like yeah. they aspire to be that politician. They aspire to be that uh, that next beloved figure. And it's like, yeah, you want to have the seat at the table. And you know what happens when you start speaking up? The rest of the table, on the white people, look at you like you're on the menu too. It, like the systems yeah. are not designed for change from the inside. I, we did, uh, unfortunately, just had a had a had a technical problem with her computer, so she she unfortunately dropped off. But I did a we did a pod a, while, uh, a few weeks ago called the top 10th which is like kind of i guess mm-hmm. we took it from dubois like this notion yeah. of the talented 10th mm-hmm. and you know i was looking at some data um andre about uh because you know you you got me uh hooked on this like on the on the, on on what the importance of household debt is going to be going forward because that that is a very important you know consumer balance sheet oh, is all important start looking right? by the way start looking at uh food supplies like that that's the the two mm-hmm. things that are right now just fucking with me and making me lose sleep oh yeah is, yeah, it's, uh, it's is the balance yeah. of household debt and then the um the uh, uh the consistency of the food supply yeah the yeah. labor the especially labor disruptions to food supply um but when I was looking at the data, I noticed that if you look at places like Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, they do a very interesting thing. What they do is they actually create graphs showing indebtedness by three classes of people, not two. They do mm-hmm. it with the top 1%. Then they do it with the next nine. Then they do the bottom 90. And you'll see an interesting thing, which is that the top 1% when it comes to say household when it comes to debt burdens relative to wealth goes way down when it when you look at the debt uh the 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 debt load on the bottom 90 it goes way up up until around the great recession the credit crunch and then it starts to go down if you look at the next 9 it's very stable it's creepy it creeps up in terms of how much debt that there it's it's a steady but very slow hmm. creep up Hmm. But they live, I think, in a sort of like, in a sort of um, a, a balanced precariousness, if you will. Like, mm. it seems to me that we need to, st- and I think that they're functionally the middle class. It's just a very small layer now. And yeah. we need to start thinking, I think, about, and I see this as, I, I'm, I actually think I see this a little bit clearer as a non-white person because we aspire to that next nine right like yep. we kind of know yeah. that that's our yeah. goal mm-hmm. and we know that 
we don't really it's very unlikely for people to progress to the quote top 1% and it's kind of like the military there's a tri there's a tripartite structure to class which keeps it safe because yeah. it's the sponge like the bottom 90 is always aspiring to get to the next 9 and it's kind of like the military. You have these sort of like generals that are actually calling the shots. You have the enlisted people, but then you have this not not tiny but not big layer of you know uh, lieutenants and officers, and they don't really have a th- uh, power, but they're sort of delegated authority, and they, in my opinion, are overwhelmingly hogging the representation for like all Asian people. Mm, and it's our yeah. lieutenants and officers, and you know who they're loyal to, right? They're not loyal loyal to the enlisted people. They are loyal to the right. people? No, 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 no. It's they're uh, told no. what to say. I, I mean, mean every, it's every, very clear. Every uh, you know, every group that's in the minority has a comfort or a class. Like that's not uh, yep. unique. Mm-hmm. I don't think to to any group. Yeah. What what is I think unique uh, to to black people is that, or at least black people in uh, North America, is that it requires like a complete like bastardization and revision of a particular kind of politic where you strip all the substance of it, but then you keep the aesthetic and then somehow it actually works for people. Like we're in a strange phase right now where we've basically like thrown out and this is not just in politics. This is also in like music, entertainment, et cetera. Like when I think about music, like I think about like, you know, how many, um, I was actually talking about with uh, this with uh, T from Champagne Sharks is that, you know, how many people would ask like uh, DJ Premier, oh, hey, you know, what are your what are your biggest hits? Or, you know, who can can DJ Premier go hit for hit with Rizzo? You would never ask a question like that. But for some mm-hmm. reason, like once uh, artists get past a certain uh, whether it's an age range or past a certain best buy date, it's like they're just disposable. But we find politics disposable that way as well. You know, like there's 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 white people that just love the shit out of Charlie Parker and can tell you his entire story, but there's not a hell of a lot of uh, black youth that are interested in jazz right now, right? Same mm-hmm. thing where it comes to politics is like so so they like the aesthetic markers of, of like uh, jazz and blues. I, I saw some TikTok videos of, of some kids uh, dancing to James Brown and whatnot, right? And it's kind of the same thing where you see you know uh, Beyonce at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. Um, marching in the Black Panther aesthetic, and it's like, but Ugh. you you embody everything that that is not, right? So it's yeah. like you you dress yourself, and, and Obama did the very same thing. You dress yourself in the garb of radical politic to give an indication that this is something that you're sympathetic towards, but then you do the exact opposite. So during his primary mm-hmm. campaign speeches, he would be dropping references to Malcolm X. He would say, "Yeah, you know, Hillary, she's uh, she's trying to hoodwink you. She's trying to bamboozle you. Don't fall for the okie doke." <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah. d- does he share any not only does he not share politics with like it just he absolutely does not share politics with malcolm x but malcolm x was also um he also believed in like the oneness of 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 uh, of, of black people like he believed in african power what does obama do when he goes to kenya he basically blames him for their own problems like obama's yeah. legacy it was actually wild to me i was thinking about this i'm like george bush's legacy i mean granted as mixed as as it is um the thing that you can actually point to for George Bush where it comes to Africa is that, okay, but there is somewhat of a legacy in terms of the PEPFAR, the uh, president's, what was it, executive plan for AIDS relief? I forget what the exact acronym were, but it was basically like the president's uh, uh, aid relief package for African countries that were being ravaged by it, right? In the Obama administration, they basically chopped it down to nothing, like to non-existence. His legacy on the African continent mm-hmm 
is AFRICOM, even though it was created just before he took office, but that's still like the legacy that he expanded on, is, yeah. is AFRICOM and drone strikes on like civilians coming back from weddings and Gaddafi getting murdered in the street like a dog. I was just going to mention Libya. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that like there's there's like this these hints toward like they basically like hollowed out radical politics and dressed themselves in it like a fucking tauntaun carcass is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, and I, I think I remember Obama saying something. Um, I, it was either towards the end of his administration or after it where he said, oh, yeah, you know, I was one of these like campus radicals and I was reading Franz Fanon and and I was what you would call, uh, you know, um, pretentious, you know, like uh, I took myself way too seriously. Like he he actively had yeah. this this sort of uh, notion that you will mature past that and see the, um, you know, you will eventually have to confront the reality of of playing uh, compromised politics. Um, but yeah, I hear you on that. I think that about this idea of draping the the appearance of radical politics and i noticed like it's uh, it's may it's what they call apam asian pacific american heritage month or something like that and uh they're running uh a documentary series on pbs about asian oh, pacific yeah. american history which i was watching yeah. the other day and you know these things kind of always go the same like i was watching it a little bit and i was like you know this ain't bad they got they're covering uh, a pretty radical era of Asian American political activism. They're talking about joining the farm workers uh, labor organization movements in the in the West Coast. Hell uh, yeah! I joined the IWW mm-hmm. myself. I'm officially a wobbly. Nice. Same, same here. Likewise. So you got yeah. two wobblies in this discussion. Nice. <laughs> yeah, they're they're covering that, and I'm like, that's great. And then they're covering um, Third World Liberation Front, and they're 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 covering the anti-war movement and all this stuff. And th- I mean, this is good. This is a very interesting because these are actually dangerous dissident politics, especially at that time, right? Like people were getting their asses kicked and and uh, killed and shit. And I was like, okay, good. But then you notice what happens is as the documentary goes on, they then they start layering it. It starts becoming fashionable where suddenly we go from like pictures of like you'll see this, like you'll see pictures of napalm being thrown in um, Vietnam. And then they start to play like rock. They start to play like the doors in the background. And then it starts to morph into like you see Asian people slowly becoming hippies and then. For some reason, napalm being dropped in Vietnam morphs into a clip of John Lennon introducing a Japanese American band who's going to come out what? and they're like, "We're going to tell our story." This what? and then it keeps morph. It's a montage where it morphs. You could see it literally morphing from true dissident politics in the in fifties and sixties towards it morphs into representational politics. In the seventies and uh, uh, the in the seventies, sixties, like the mid nineteen sixties, like I, it's mm-hmm. hard for me to fathom how explosive a political era that was in such a short span yeah. of time. And yeah. one of the tremendous missed opportunities with that, and I, I kind of put this on, I, like I put part of it on the almost complete eradication of uh, communist history. Uh, you didn't really have black people identifying as socialists. You had black people identifying as liberationists, but the socialist history had been almost uh, totally eradicated by then by the McCarthy era. And mm-hmm. I think about like 
the, it, it, what was happening in uh, in 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 Europe, what was happening in on the African continent, what was happening in South Asia, but also what was happening in America and Canada too. In in the mid sixties, it was like it was like the world was just like primed for something to happen, and it was like a car backfiring. It just went, and then all yeah. of the yeah, just like all of the energy dies out. And I think what what that was was capitalist assimilation of that radical politic so then yeah. ca- hippie counterculture just becomes a bunch of people smoking weed and saying peace man and you know wearing funky multicolored shirts uh the uh the, the black politic basically as parody is a bunch as a bunch of people in afros and bell-bottom jeans you know like it just it, it just died out with the course of assimilationism would you say yeah. the same thing happened to Black Lives Matter in an even more compressed oh amount of time? Oh my God! Yes, you know? yes, yes, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was just. Uh, oh, that's a really great question, Teen. Because I was. This is something I've, I've been talking to Andre about. This. This is something I addressed on our podcast. Um, bre- I briefly touched on it, but basically, because um, yeah, as a reporter, so can I, just say, can I, I just say one thing? I just want to say one thing. Go, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. How the fuck do you sign? How do you sign? a contract with an agency as a writer in the middle of a fucking strike. How, how is that possible? How are are you, how are you a black radical breaking a fucking strike wall? Like how are you, how are you crossing the picket line? You're crossing a picket line in the middle of a fucking strike and you're anyway, I just, uh, when you, when you say like, do you believe that that sort of innervated? I think a lot of people are like, saying quietly but not quite ready to say out loud like yeah this actually did become a heat sink for black anger like it did become a yeah. heat sink for what was possible like a possible uh a revolutionary movement there there was a um this is back 2014 november i think it was late november after the um there is a grand jury verdict uh on the michael brown case where darren wilson was basically the grand jury refused to indict him and so there was a rally and there was a planned rally in downtown Oakland. Um, and then I remember it was, it, was, it was a very vivid moment because it was vivid to me because there was something like, I felt like something's going to spark off here. Like, cause I had been to a lot of protests, but this protest just felt different. The energy and the anger and the militancy was there. And so when the news came out that Darren Wilson was not indicted, people were pissed. And so the crowd grew larger and larger and larger it was a lot of black people but like you had other people of different different ethnic groups like i saw asian kids i saw white people i saw like there it it got so big that people took over the freeway so for those of you in in ferguson you mean no oakland this is in oakland Oakland. okay okay yeah if, if for those of you who are unfamiliar downtown oakland um can get kind of um it could it sometimes well not get too crowded but there's a high a highway 580 um if it's like evening time that highway is packed with traffic and people basically just shut down the freeway that's how palpable the militancy was like people took over the freeway i have footage of it so and, and over darren have, wilson the 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 police yeah. officer in ferguson yeah. So, yep. so yeah. For so, Darren Wilson was a guy who shot and killed Michael Brown, and the grand jury refused to indict him. So, people were at that time were waiting for the results of the, of the grand jury verdict. So, basically, when essentially when Darren Wilson just got off, people were pissed, and so the there was real organic energy, not just in Oakland, but I noticed in even in other cities it was similar. So, there was real. Um, 
like when you like when I talk about black politics, like I felt like that was a moment where like this actually seems like real organic independent black political voice like being expressed here in the streets. The thing is is um after that like I don't think the that that energy was really um put anywhere in terms of like organized institutions to to get that kind of um to actually like change that ju- f- from protesting in the streets to actually pressuring the political system. I remember interviewing um a lawyer uh who works at who one of the Guantanamo lawyers and he said um I, I think they're at like uh there is a hearing for the UN Convention Against Torture, and he told me that there were some Black Lives Matter activists there, which I thought was like, wait, that's really militant. Like, there are Black Lives Matter activists petitioning an international body to address the ongoing is- issue of systematic racist police violence against Black people in this country. That's huge. And then you turn from that to. I, I don't know where it is now. It seems like the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter got morphed into the quote unquote progressive wing of the Democratic Party. It seems like some of that got sucked into like, should we vote for Elizabeth Warren or Tom Steyer or Bernie Sanders? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, that's a very, very watered down version, especially from the event that I saw. Like it's a very, very watered down version from what happened there to like, how how, how the fuck is Tom Steyer? Like, what the fuck was he going to do to address police violence or boring or even sanders i mean i you know i voted for sanders but like i you know he had some faults i think especially on foreign policy but you know to to go from that kind of militant energy to get sucked into electoral politics and even the nonprofit sector yeah i think that that energy got got co-opted pretty quickly I think it's a playbook. I mean, uh, you know, when I was watching this documentary, I'm like, I can see it. Like, if you look for it, you can see it. And I'm like, the, you know, it just, it just, everything turns into representational politics at the end of the day. Yeah. And everything yeah. is about, and I, and I see all of a sudden we got these Pulitzer Prize winning Asian American authors and we got these filmmakers and everything. And then the music turns upbeat. It becomes like sort of upbeat music. And it's like, you know, what we need to do is we need to tell our story and no single story can represent the, the, and it's like power to the people. And it's like, you know, uh, there's, there's 21 million strong and they can't, no one, no one person can tell our story. We all need to tell our, I'm like, it, it just becomes, what are we, Teddy Ruxpin? Like we got to tell all these damn stories. Like everything is, you know, it becomes very, uh, up, it's a feeling of solidarity, but there's right. no operationalization of it. It's, it's, it's this like, feeling of I want to be seen I want to be heard I want to be represented and then it's like okay well then here are a couple exceptional authors and filmmakers that are going to be really we're going to you're going to see a lot of good stuff coming from them in the next few years because they've got a few contracts lined up with the publishers and Hollywood and everything and it's like um that's it there's no way forward (laughs) it it seems yeah it seems like what you're talking about I think like this kind of weird era we're in when it comes to race and identity politics. I think people confuse uh, representation with actual politics. So it's like, okay, once you get some kind of representation in Hollywood, like, okay, so that's like the, the end goal of the politics. Like, so, so it's like people forget like, okay, so what are we going to do about like, I mean, there is, especially now with COVID-19, like we did an episode with a friend of mine who's a doctor in Washington, DC about like, 
you know the the number of black people who are being who are being killed by who are getting cases and dying of COVID nineteen and the lack of healthcare. So there there's that going on. There's a, especially with the Ahmad Arbery. There's the ongoing um, issue of racist police killings of black people in this country. And even with COVID nineteen, like there's a an increase in hate crimes against Asian people in the United States. So it's like so that reality doesn't change. Like there's still material oppression going on, but the best people can do is just like get a story in Hollywood. Like how does like yeah. how does yeah. how does one fix the other? I think you know. I think part of it is exactly what you were saying before about how like this aspirational sort of, bourgeoisie politics. Like how how yeah. can how can you know uh, getting a job and uh, changing narratives? I I'm I'm not really sure exactly what this is, but it kind of sounds a lot like trickle down liberation to me. I, but maybe it yeah. does. Maybe and yeah. and I and I've yeah. noticed personal in my personal life that the people who care about, for example, crazy rich Asians being a big blockbuster or whatever. I don't know that. It, it was usually people either in that what you know the 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 um the upper professional class that mm-hmm. liked there there's a social flex and recognition that they want like to be highlighted mm-hmm. by media really helps them out in terms of their particular social uh status within the hierarchies that they navigate in their professional and social lives okay so the urban professional class really likes this stuff. And then I've noticed that for everyone else, those who really, really aspire to that care about it, but everyone else doesn't even give a shit uh, is what I've noticed that a lot of people were like, there, there, there's, there are a lot of Asian people I know in America that just don't care about any of these Asian celebrity gossip and rumors about what movies are going to come and who's going to star in what. But if you look at the media and who really controls the online conversation, it's all those, uh, you know, sort of uh, elite liberal urban professional classes that are both the audience and the creators of this content. And it's totally fixated on it. There's not, you know, like there's there's just an absolute faith that that's the way forward. You know, um, it's it's hard to find an alternative when everything you see and read is is created by from this layer of, of our, uh, of our population. I, I, I just, um, I finished my MFA in nonfiction writing, um, last December. And what you're talking about team, like the, the, was pretty much a lot of people were talking about that in my MFA program. Real working class shit over there, bro. Uh, they were talking. They were talking. <laughs> just a champion of the proletariat. You. Were. <laughs> I, I had. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm um, playing. I'm playing. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we all got to get our degrees and teach. Okay. Oh, oh, well, I, well, listen. Some, uh, some uh, somebody went and looked up my uh, LinkedIn page and saw that. Like, oh my gosh, he used to be a financial advisor. Like, what a champion of the working class. Like, oh my gosh, he taught. Uh, oh this, yeah. Uh, this uh, this this yeah. is really weird pocket watching shit. And I have to bring yeah. it up just because you said that you know graduate with with MFA. But one thing that I've kind of found, uh, and this is this is another thing that really like kind of puts me off about white leftists, is that like, why are you watching people's pockets and their job histories? Like, what the fuck is? I work right. for a living, just sure. the same as you work for a living, just yeah. the same as everybody else works for a living. What the f- so like the the type of jobs we have? But the, okay, so uh, there's there's actually a point to all this. The type of jobs that we generally have in the working class are not industrial jobs because we live in a post-industrial no. economy. But here's the thing. Yeah. Do you, Adam, find that there's a little bit of like fetishization of like hood shit 
like drug dealing or you know like yeah. working in a butcher shop or something like that like the, the, the stuff the stuff that like yeah. people yeah it's like if you're not doing this mm-hmm. then you're part of the bourgeoisie well yeah but so are you technically but yes but this is what i admire so it's like the the same sort of like hillbilly elegy kind of shit we kind of do it to ourselves too have you noticed that yeah and also i like i I think Peter and I talked about this on an episode a couple episodes ago, but basically like, you know, you can have like quote unquote black middle class people, but they're still tied to the black community. So if you go like maybe, and this is also a disconnect between like how black people are portrayed in the reality of black America. Like you can have like, you know, people who are teachers, which, you know, you need a college degree for that, but they still teach in a black neighborhood. Right. So the reason why I mentioned the, the MFA thing, there's a, there's a reason why I mentioned it is because there, there that whole issue of representation matters was like all throughout like my MFA program and not just my MFA program, but like the whole like world of publishing and media. Right. And I'll, I want to tie in all these points and because this is the frustration I felt because I was navigating two worlds, even in graduate school, like working in my community, which is you know largely working class lower income and then going to an mfa program which is like uh, among the most bourgeois things like you know so but but what i noticed there in like those kinds of institutions the people who want representation a lot of times like their discourse is disconnected from the day-to-day realities of the communities they claim to represent and so what happens is that like okay because i got approved by this bourgeois usually white owned bourgeois institution that's somehow a win for the community at large when like you're not really fixing the day-to-day material conditions of the community and i think like like black writers like the harlem renaissance for example you know was still had roots in the black working class as did black nationalism because a lot of the black bourgeoisie going back to fraser's book they didn't like the Harlem Renaissance because it was too black for them because the Harlem Renaissance was still in conversation with the communities they represented. So I think like if anyone is, is, you know, if you're of the community, you have like some educated background, like I, I think um, you're still supposed to have ties um, to your community, but yeah, like the, the whole representation matters discourse, it gets far removed from the material conditions and, material analysis is pretty Marxist <laughs> going mm-hmm. back to our Marxism discussion. But I do think it's useful because, um, you know, when you have like people like in, in media and all that shit um, from non-white communities, um, there is going to be a disconnect between like the stuff that they're saying. Well, not, not a, always a disconnect, but like there's a dialectic. There we go. There's an ongoing conversation between like, the institutions that they're part of versus the communities they claim to represent. Um, and I think like now with the, this, this era that we're in, I think one of my critiques is that like, okay, you can get all the representation you want in Hollywood. You can get all the fucking representation you want in these, these uh, publish publishing companies, but that doesn't fix the material conditions of the communities you claim to represent. So just telling black people stories to a white audience is not going to fix the material conditions of black people i think some of the best i think good black art is challenging and engaging like it's not supposed to um just tell our story it's telling your story to to make a point like hey there's some shit going on in in the black community that needs to be fixed like that's real 
I think the high point of, in my opinion, of really good black art and black literature, if you're just telling your story for the sake of telling a story, okay, that's fine. But like, where does that get you? You know, like, like that's, yeah, that's and, where the, and, the, yeah. I mean, I think that's right because if you look, I'm sure the publishing industry is a very different and more developed marketplace than it was say in the twenties or something. And, uh, the, the goal back then probably wasn't to write a book that could be a, you know, the, the, um, the rights would be sold off to HBO to make a series or like, I don't know if that was like your experience in the MFA program, but like my friends who have gone through MFA said that there was a, there's a real market incentives built into the way they teach that they know that mm. publishers are looking for particular types of yeah. stories that mm-hmm. there's types of stories that are easier to adapt into television. And that's where the real mm-hmm. money is. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like, no matter what you've got to write for the, 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 the market, you've got to write for the market structure. Yeah. You've got to have that yeah. in mind when you're writing, you know? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And I think like, you know, when you're going to, if you're in an institution like that, like there's going to be a, there's, there's going to be a back and forth between like, okay, you know, am I trying to sell a story so it gets on HBO or is my story supposed to reflect the reality of the community that I'm part of and that I care about, you know? Um, and, and at least like, you know, when I went into MFA, like I mainly, I wanted to teach like, and I always, at least through my own work history, aside from freelance writing, has always been teaching and going back to my community. So, and and we look at jobs, especially like community college jobs. Like, and and this is and this is like, I mean, to going back to your point, Andre. I think this is where like the you know you, that argument you were having with that uh, that English professor. The reality is, especially for Black people, like we have to get these degrees just to get a job, mm-hmm. right? In, in some of these professions, like especially you know if if you're let, let's say if you want to be a Black teacher in K through twelve, right? you still have to go through a teaching credential program and all this other shit that like, look, if, if, if you're going to have like less intergenerational wealth to fall back on versus a white person going through that program, it's the same in journalism. I mean, journalism require, it doesn't really require a college degree, but it helps. But you know, as I've, I've worked at media internships and like the reason why there's a lack of diversity is not just because of race, but because of class. Like when you, a lot of black people in America, like don't have the kind of intergenerational wealth that white people do. So we literally can't afford to work a free internship, you know? So in in some ways, like by going to universities, it opens that door for us to get the economic resources that were stolen from us. So when white people critique a black person for having an education, like you're, we're not starting on equal footing. Right, so so white people who can go to education, like, look, they're they're benefiting well, they from don't the really system know of white supremacy. Anything past, you know, uh, aesthetic class markers, but right. you know, actually, yeah. yeah, you know who actually has like a fairly um, cogent critique here, and, and and I see where you're going with this, but mm-hmm. uh, you're aware that Kamala Harris's father is a Marxist scholar, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. the comment, or I'm pretty sure he's retired now. So I'll say, uh, yeah, uh, you know. Uh, Professor Emeritus at, at uh, Stanford, but he had he had this conversation. He was writing about this in the 1970s. The labor, like, so we know that in a Marxist framework of labor, like labor power uh, produces value 
who the value accrues to is what creates the kind of society that you live in. So your social relationship to the power that is produced out of, out of your, uh, out of your, out of both out of your labor and out of the, the overarching system that determines what kind of system you're in. And for black people, their labor is like, there is a specific purpose in the reproduction of capital to devalue black labor. So there's yeah. always going to be another step that you have to get through as a black person in order to mm-hmm. just get in at the ground floor. And that serves a purpose is to drive down wages and to depress the ability to collectively bargain. But it's also exacerbated by the fact that there are many people who work inside of not just like labor movements, but also work in the uh, work in and within uh, the same classes that uh, black workers are just trying to get into by educating themselves or being trained. But there is a wage for them to keep them out of the movement and not have solidarity with them because there is a wage that's paid simply for being white. I have a confidence that I will be able to get this job. This job belongs to me. If somebody else is coming in and uh, getting a job in a field that I wanted, it is a job that belonged to me that I was entitled to and that they've stolen from me. But that is itself, that is in and of itself a function of capitalism. You're setting the workers in competition with one another. And part of what you can do is incentivize one worker to believe that they're entitled to something that was stolen from them by a fellow worker and not stolen from you by the employer. But that's, that's something that like, I don't think really clicks in people's minds. Like people talk about like, you know, the ruling class, people talk about, uh, you know, the way, the ways that uh, the ruling class divides us, but never actually talk about the mechanisms by which that happens. So for example, if you read, uh, there's a 1978 paper called capitalist exploitation of black labor, some conceptual issues. And he goes into this in explicit length. And I'm like, the fact that Donald Harris doesn't get read and this isn't like, I don't know about people, uh, citing this at, uh, DS, say get togethers and uh discussing you know what what the issues are that need to be addressed like I, I don't hear people citing donald harris but i also don't hear people citing people like cedric robinson i also don't hear and this is what's wild to me in 1999 uh, a fellow named jim sedanius and uh, a lady named felicia prado write this book called social dominance when what social dominance theory is it's it doesn't exactly try to be a theory of everything but what it does is it takes um like a multitude of studies as to how dominant classes like ruling classes, but ethnically dominant classes are able to uh, create a subordinate position for subordinated classes. So how is it, for example, that uh, black people in education get such a raw deal? How is it, for example, that black people have so many barriers to employment? How does all of this happen? What are the mechanisms by which this happens? And they break down every everything from naming the Protestant, like if you have a high affinity for the Protestant work ethic, you may have empathy for black people, but you might consider them lazy. And by considering them lazy by default, it leads to a multitude of other assumptions, which leads to them not getting a job. Like the, here are the assumptions, here are the root causes, and then here are the outcomes. And it's all empiricized. Like I said, it's a multitude of studies. An actual, an actual a Marxist that's very interested in the material conditions of the world, that is, this is like the Rosetta Stone. It's like, <gasps> holy shit, social dominance yeah. explains so much. The, the, the actual means by which capital convert, like uh, capitalism converts itself into a sort of a psychosocial disorder Whereas workers are pitted against one another and the and people in the working class will side with the ruling class against another member of the working class, it's all here. But the thing is, none of this stuff gets read because they don't believe that we have our own histories. They don't believe that there's any sort of thing as a, like a heterodoxy within the black community. It's just, well, they'll say really uh, 
uh, flip and uh, uh, ignorant things like, well, blackness is not a monolith. To explain a black person, for example, who like you know thinks it's okay to uh, for white people to say the n word or whatever the fuck, but. <laughs> So they they understand that there's like a heterodoxy for like uh, for, I, I want to get to something, Adam. I want I want to dovetail into something for black people that don't really understand this uh, this background and this tradition. They'll 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 see the heterodoxy there, but for every black person that they don't like, we're all the same. And Adam, th- and tell me if this is incorrect because we've talked about this. Like the idea mm-hmm. that there are some black people that come by their politics in their freshman year of college. They've they've read Marx. Or they've read um, they've read uh, Noam Chomsky, and there are some black people who've read Kwame Nkrumah, and the people who know about like Kwame Nkrumah, <laughs> Marcus Garvey, the people who know about the Black Panthers, etc. They develop a, a I am type of politics. my fingers. Uh, right I, now. I can hear it. I hear it. I hear it. <laughs> but yo, this man's spitting. Uh, <laughs> and the th- the thing is, the the problem the problem is, um, it seems like the most sort of like visibly active uh, DSA types are the ones that came by their politics in the primary method I said, which is freshman year of college reading manufacturing consent. And then they think they've figured the world out. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just, just to um, back up your point. I mean, my, as I said before, my political evolution, like largely came out of the black intellectual traditions. Like, I mean, look, if you, if you were to go to my room and look at the books I have, like I have a lot of like, you know, the Norton anthology of African-American literature. I have a book, uh, autobiography of Adam Clayton Powell Jr. I have, um, I, I'm, I have, dude, Fran, um, Wretched of the Earth, France Fanon. Like I'd read that after I read Marx, and when I read Fanon, like this is very common when people read Fanon, but like it's a life changing book. Like I'm, I'm not kidding. That book literally changed my life in terms of how I view politics because I felt Fanon's Wretched of the Earth was a very good heuristic for understanding colonialism. And particularly how it manifests itself in other uh, colonized groups. So I found a lot to draw from Fanon to apply to the condition of Black people uh, in America. And if you go in like white less spaces, like they'll read Marx, but they won't read Fanon. Like there's a very uh, there's a, there is a divide. So yeah, what you're saying, Andre, I think is true because like you know this is a fun little fact, but like one of my family friends was a Black Panther. You know, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. Like, you know, if you're from the Bay Area, especially Oakland, like yeah. the Black Panthers had a very, very deep cultural legacy. Like there are still people who are in who are active in the Black Panthers who are still around. So that was still part of like, you know, I'm not letting go of that because, uh, you know, culturally, like that's something I yeah, it's first, it's, I'm proud of. Yeah, similar to me uh, in terms of like um, the, the Black Action Defense Committee, which was a like uh, – uh, it was a radical organization that was around in the late seventies, eighties and so on. And, but the thing is like the Caribbean community in Toronto at that time was fairly small. Like it, you, everybody knew who some, somebody who knew somebody. So when I, I, a while back I mentioned um, Dudley laws, I don't remember what it was that I was talking about on social media, but I happened to bring up Dudley laws and someone's like, Oh yeah, there's that, that man is a, that man is a giant. That man is a warrior. And he's like, uh, it's, it's great that you know about Dudley laws. I'm like, no about him. I'm like, like he knew my grandparents. <laughs> like they, yeah, they probably yeah. came over on the same boat together. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, uh, like that. That you know, um, especially in terms of like the radicalism that I think sometimes people, uh, like it's weird when like Bay Area transplants romanticize the radicalism in the Bay Area. But like, I do think one thing that I think it is very true and fair to say is that 
a lot of the radicalism you see, particularly in Oakland, it is a is a descendant from the Black Panther Party in Oakland, and so that's why I mentioned my family friend. It's like you know, it's they're that's part of you know at, at least my own political evolution. So, um, and and even like just just family conversations, like you know, with my family, we would talk about politics, and our political conversations were. A little bit different than the political conversations I, I would have like my white leftist friends because we have a different set of concerns in the black community. So we're going to hash them out amongst each other. So there's a dialectic and an intellectual tradition that, uh, you know, it is steeped in, is steeped in the black community that um, I think if anyone is serious, and this is, this is, I think this is, this is my frustration with the white left is that if the white left is serious about the things they say they claim like challenging capitalism and oppression it will behoove them to actually listen to black radicals right because like if your thing is like man the u.s government sucks blah 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 blah, like oppression like capitalism imperialism it all sucks man yeah fuck the system well wouldn't it make sense to talk to the communities who've had a very very long history of being screwed over by the same system that you're yelling about and the intellectual tra- traditions that they've developed over a long period of time, generations going back to slavery. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do think um, Andre, you're right about like there is a divide between if your politics developed steeped within black intellectual culture versus like not having firm roots in that tradition, and then getting politically awakened by reading a lot of like white intellectuals and white thinkers. So it's just like, do you not, does it not occur to you to, to investigate your own people? Like, does that occur to you to like look to your own? And I think, I think in some senses, like there are some people that are just embarrassed at their blackness and some people are embarrassed at their history. Uh, And when they when they read some of these white theorists, they come back like, oh, they're like Moses coming down the mountain. You know what I mean? With the stone yeah. tablets. I, I don't, I don't, um, wait, I want to, I'm curious, Teen, what you think and also Andre, but I, I, I do think, I think subconsciously, a lot of people, especially non-white people, subconsciously see themselves as white. So they look through, they look at their own communities through a white person's lens, but it's only until like they experience some racist shit that they realize, oh wait, I'm not white. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, and I they think make that's a wake up call. Right. Yeah. Oh shit! Am and I so allowed to say I... that in your podcast? <laughs> you say, what I... <laughs> wait a second. Oh shit! I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, but, I, but... I, I, that's a conversation, Adam. That I think we have engaged ourselves in a lot. And I think that, you know, my my personal thinking around this is that I don't know. I don't know if I can necessarily say that this that we'll say an aspirational Asian people necessarily think of themselves as white. And in fact, I've noticed we actually carry a lot of times an antagonism towards whiteness. But I Mm -hmm. do think that there's faith that if you reach a certain class status in society, that there is a process of de-ethnification where people sort of check their mm. ethnic identities at the door mm-hmm. and you become de-raced in a sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that that is, a, that is sort of the ultimate dignity in, in America is sort of the de-ethnification. And so when I think, yeah. I think the term white is overloaded and I think that mm-hmm. white means many different things. And in this context that I think a lot of Asian people – 
I would say the same kind of exists where there's like a, uh, there is like an aspirationalism among some black people that they will sort of like rise along a hierarchy or that uh, the racialization will somehow dissolve into the ether. As if, yeah, like, and there's, as if, like, and there's the, a ne- yeah. there's a neoliberal aspect to it too, which is like I yeah. want to be valued in this marketplace without any sort of uh, you know penalty because of the color of my skin. Like I'm I'm as good a I'm as as valuable a good based on my functions, my skills as a white person. Mm-hmm. And so you should pay me commensurately. You should hire me, you know. And it, it's a lot about the equality of my marketplace value. Uh, which I'm not going to say, like, if you accept the neoliberal frame, of course, that should be the case. That is the just outcome, you know, but but I think that it's so it's so um, how do I put it? It's like I don't think of liberal white spheres as necessarily anti-racist. I think of it as anti-race, meaning they don't mm. like the concept of race at all. Uh do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, they're yeah. anti-racist, but they go even deeper in the sense of like we need to cleanse yeah. everyone of race. And so it, I found it's actually in white left spaces where I get the most pushback in terms of racial discussion where people are saying, actually, you're the one that's, you know, uh, when you talk about race, even as a non-white person, you're actually succumbing to the social co- abstraction that is race. And even talking about it just reinforces <laughs> yeah. the, the fiction of race. <laughs> you know, yeah, and you're yeah, like, yeah, where, yeah. The, yeah. What, where am I right now? And who am yeah. I talking to? Like, what, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, They're telling you, like, you're yeah. the racist for talking about it. And Don't like, bring that race shit in here. This is a race-free zone, my friend. There's no racism <laughs> well, yeah, or race in here. That's actual yeah, gaslighting. Here's but uh, here's you, a th- well, I, just, I just want to address a couple of things. Yeah. Uh, one, um, it, it kind of, like, it, it, it occurred to me almost like uh, the way that, uh, like, sunlight is metabolized in the skin. Like, uh, it's metabolized in black skin as, as, as vitamin D, right? Where um, the, like, the idea of, like, deracination is almost like it's going to be metabolized into the body, into something healthy. But the thing is, blackness is itself like a receptacle. Like, blackness doesn't, and if you, you know, read Afro-pessimism, this will leap out to you. That blackness doesn't black skin and blackness doesn't occur in the white imagination and in white supremacy as anything other than a threat, like a sort of like a negative photo of oneself. Yeah, it's like you know seeing mm-hmm. seeing through a mirror darkly. Um, the second thing is this, you know, with this whole like a uh, de-race conversation. When you say something like race is a social construct, and we we do not reify that construct by talking about it in here. It's like hand-waving a talisman. So it's like we're going to say that it's a social construct, but then continue as it ex- continue as if it is a thing that exists so that if you're talking yeah. about it, it is so dangerous. You're, you're reintroducing this social construct into the conversation. So there's no way that we can be comfortable with it. We have to like banish it and like burn sage and like pour salt across the lintel. Uh, because if, if if this thing that we socially constructed and we say it doesn't exist, if you bring it up, it comes back like a like a revenant of some kind. But that is like that's all of the peace like under white supremacy. And I'm I'm kind of speaking from an Afro pessimist point of view here because I, I do think that there, there's some value in it. And that's that like mm-hmm. part of what stands um, between groups in terms of like working class solidarity is that there is a I don't want to call it white guilt. But there is a subconscious, I think, truth that exists. And that's that, and they, they actually just say that out loud in, in Django Unchained. And that's that, it's like, why haven't they fucking killed us? Like, we've just, we've just done some horrific shit. 
we talk about how much horrific shit we do. We brag about the horrific shit we do. Anytime that like uh, you know somebody black gets murdered by vigilantes or police, there's always going to be like the alt right or 4chan or whoever making fun of it. Or like now it's like mm-hmm. uh, there's like a jogger meme going around. So it's like man, we do some really horrendous shit. And if they actually had power, we'd probably die. And I think yeah. that's that is almost like what they're reacting to. Not the whole like I'm uncomfortable with race, but that I think for a lot of white people, even white people that claim that they're on the left, they actually fear black liberation because they cannot imagine yeah. black liberation that doesn't end with their massacre. And also like the D like, look, I like being black. Like, I don't always like to think of black right. as like in a sense of like, there are beautiful things about black culture that I was exposed to growing up and that make me who I am. Like, I mean, I said I was a musician earlier. Uh, I've been playing drums for almost a decade um and a lot of it is like i have uncles who are musicians i one of my uncles was in a calypso band in the 70s and then my grandparents um my mom's side of the family all grew up near motown so i was growing up with stories of like motown in the 50s 60s and 70s like when stevie wonder and michael jackson were coming out at the time so when i think of particularly african-american culture that's my culture like this is literally part of my culture in terms of family lineage, in terms of how you define culture as a specific thing, not the abstract. Because I think the problem is that too many people talk about black people in the abstract and not the concrete. Like we actually do have intellectual histories. We do have a culture. Um, little Richard just passed away a couple days ago. There would be no rock and roll without R- Little Richard, mm-hmm. right? Little Richard and sister Rosetta Tharp. Um, as a drummer, like a lot of my inspiration were African American drummers, particularly in jazz music. Tony Williams, Art Blakey, Max Roach. Um, I was listening to Miles Davis when I was a teenager because it was my uncles told me about it. You know, so when I think of like there, and the thing, the, the problem is that African American culture gets fused with American culture. So as a result, everyone thinks they can have a piece of it. Well, it's actually, no, you really don't have a, a rightful claim to African-American culture. You can participate in it, in it, but it's not yours. And I think when when blackness gets de-ethnified... Yeah, de- try, de- try to tell it, a white it, person it, no to anything, especially where it comes right. to cultural yeah. consumption. And, and, cultural and, I, and I, see it, I see it as a musician. This is what, what frustrates me on a personal level, because I see it as a musician in, in music spaces I go to. I see many elements of my culture being ripped away from me. It's like, I feel like I'm one of the people who's like, I have to fight hard to preserve this because if I don't, my people will die culturally. Like we won't have a history. And that's part of colonization is that if you can rip away people's culture, you basically take away their history and then you can say they don't exist. And so therefore it's okay to kill them and colonize them. And, and, and yeah. And I think like when we talk about, you know, particularly African-Americans, I think it's important to say like, we do have a culture. Rap music is ours. Funk is ours. Jazz is ours. Blues is ours. Rock and roll came from the blues, and the early rock and rollers were Rosetta Tharp and Little Richard. Rest in peace, Little Richard. Um, those things actually do belong to us. I mean, people can appreciate it, but like in the same way, like look, like living in California, I like going to Mexican restaurants owned and operated by Mexicans. So food is better, and also it's part of their culture. I'm not going to go in and try to take their recipe and say it's mine. Like I'm going to respect, like, hey, that's theirs. Yeah, I, I think like that's. It. I think I think that's right. I think that it, it, you know, it's almost like um, the way I think of it is that y- you know, at some point, if you trace your personal lineage back far enough, it gets vague 
because mm-hmm. we don't have records and there's we have too many great great grandparents to count. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes it sh- personal lineage sh- sort of shades into ethnicity, right? Like mm-hmm. at some point, ethnicity sort of overtakes your direct personal lineage. Yeah, and they're yeah. they're intimately connected and they they kind of shade into each other. You know, as you were talking, and, and since we're doing a, a Black Asian conversation here, there was a. Um, a, a stupid little piece of pop culture that I think kind of summed up my frustration with liberal white attitudes. Uh, do you guys know a, a person named Neil Brennan? He um, Neil, Bre- Wait, Neil Brennan's a comedian. For, uh, oh, Bell him. Show. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, yes, he yeah. was he was very he was very close with the Chappelle clique. I think he was like a direct. He might have directed uh, like um, what was that the 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 the, the weed movie? Um, oh, uh, the sh- the how, way back in the day. Uh, Oh, is it how high? No, is that no, it? no, 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 no. It's, it's a Chappelle movie about. Damn, oh, what was it called? Oh my With, god, like, I Jim Brewer. I'm, yeah, it was filmed. It was yeah. filmed in Toronto, so like I know it's on the tip okay. of my tongue. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. Half baked, half baked. Half baked. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. he he was he was part of the Chappelle clique early on. He's a white guy, and he he did a. It's actually worth watching. I would say it's not a bad uh, special. I thought it was quite funny and very touching in a way but it also revealed a lot to me about white liberal attitudes and he did a it's a netflix special called three mics and it's a comedy special but it's also uh sort of like a very intimate discussion of his struggles with depression and like really serious depression and stuff and he said something very interesting he said you know the only thing that saved me in the end was my connection to my black friends who only they understood suffering the way that I was suffering and stuff. But he felt excommunicated from the group because he wasn't black. Therefore, he said in an ironic way, it was racism itself. I mean, that that got him excommunicated from this black clique of his. That was the only solution to his pain or whatever. And then he said something. And I thought this was the part that I was like, you see, this is this is my problem with the way white liberals think. He said, ultimately, to get rid of racism, we need to get rid of race. And then he said, to get rid of race, we just need to we just need to fuck each other. Like everyone like we like we all Uh, need to mix it up. And then his his, the punchline, of course, was to bring it back to this black Asian conversation was I call dibs on the Asian girls. (laughs) And then the lights go down. This is the problem right here. This is the problem is I think he actually had it completely backwards. It was like if you want to extend this concept of deracializing America or whatever, like we were going to all mix together into one super race or whatever if you want to get rid of race i think what you need to do is actually get rid of racism i mean that's a very that's a really dumb i mean thing to say but even if just operating from that principle of race versus racism which one goes first I think the white liberal does believe that you have to get rid of race. That but here's race the thing, but you, is you the actually problem, do though. You know? But but race kind of is that like the the construction of race. I actually broke this down to somebody a little while back. A while back, because you know you know I'm a history guy, and uh, uh, I I I try to interrupt conversations that are just dumb. Uh, and mm. one of them is this idea that like racism is some sort of primordial first force as old as the earth itself now you can point to specific times in history where like uh there is a formulation of race as a thing that means more than an outside group that there's an actual meaning attached to it right so uh in aristotle's politics he talks about for example uh the uh the barbaroi the the barbarians he's talking he's referring to the the thracians for the most part that the uh the barbaroi um are the, the people who are naturally predisposed to to being slaves 
that's that's where it was first formulated. I mean, for most people that are like uh, uh, you know interested in the uh, the history of slavery, they'll generally point to that specific point. But where it comes to uh, transatlantic slavery people act like transatlantic slavery is just like thing that that materialized out of nowhere like no there was a very specific voyage that a very specific voyager took like there was a in, in 1441 uh nuno tristan uh, uh goes to arguing island and comes back with 14 slaves that kicks off the transit like, that kicks off the transatlantic slave trade because for the um uh, uh for the colonies that were built uh in the uh, the caribbean a few decades later the 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 amount of manpower that it was required to build, for example, like sh- to do clear cutting, to build sugarcane fields, etc., to build these uh, these latifundias, that required human labor. And because all of the Tainos had either died uh, from disease due to contact or been slaughtered, that was what created the demand for slaves imported from Africa. If you look at in it was like the late 18th century. Um, uh, Blumenthal's book, which was like a, a dissertation on the existence of races. I mean, that's exactly where you can point to race. You can point to like 12th century France, like the birthplace of the uh, the market economy and urbanization. That's where you can point to like uh, the, the the commercialization and the birth of mercantilism, or the, uh, the, uh, the 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 birth of the bourgeois class. So it's like you put all of these things together, and like this is how you arrive at slavery. So you can't just say, for example, like. Uh, you know, we have to uh, tackle racism first and then we can have the race. No, you you can't. It's not possible. Race begets racism. White supremacy itself is a function of the invention of race. But one more thing I wanted to address here is that, um, uh, Adam, you were saying, you know, a while ago about uh, how it is that our um, culture is is stripped away from us. And it's like, you, you, if you read a, um, an essay by Akhil Mbembe, it's called Necropolitics. He has mm. uh, sort of like a critique of uh, Foucault and a critique of Hegel, right? So his, his critique of Foucault is the, well, not exactly a critique, but it's sort of like a, a response to Foucault. And so in uh, Foucault's book, Il Defend, Il Defend la Société, which is, uh, we must defend society. Or Il faut défait Oh my god, my French is like leaving me because I was like speaking patois all day with my family, so now I can't I can't speak a word <laughs> of French now. <laughs> Il faut défendre la société is what I'm trying to say here. Um, we must defend society. In the uh, in the book, he uh, he brings up this concept of biopower, right? So the idea of mm. like um, the the idea that this the uh, the state draws power from people, like the the ability of people within the state, it's almost like, imagine like a, like a battery powering, uh, pat- uh, powering a, a, an electric vehicle, right? That's what he refers to as, as biopower. But there, so there's a purpose in having people alive. Like you must have, uh, live living people. But what Mbembe does is say, well, but there's also a, um, uh, there's also a function in having people dead. If people are, for example, like socially dead, or if we consider them socially dead, then whatever we take from them is, free reign now he doesn't actually say that in necropolitics yeah. but i'm thinking like you know extending his like his argument in in the uh, the, the the existence of necropolitics like the social utility of death like there is a social mm-hmm. utility in thinking of cultures as dead there's a social utility in, of thinking of people yeah. as naturally dead so if you think of black people for example as existing already dead beings then whatever you take from them belongs to you which is why i think right it's such a violent reaction when we push back but it's like but but why can't we participate in this culture because they assume the so, culture so, they, they assume the culture and the people are in a sense dead socially dead so so um tina that the uh, i want to uh bring up um 
uh, I don't know if you guys remember the 2014 Grammys when uh, Macklemore won a ton of Grammys and he gave a, he sent a text message to Kendrick Lamar. And I think like this is a, this is a good follow up to the Neil Brennan discussion and also the <laughs> necropolitics because yeah. mm-hmm. um, Peter, Peter, my co-host Peter M. Gunn said that uh, this is basically like a great encap- encapsulation of the white liberal mind. So basically like when Macklemore he won, um, I think 2014, he won. Yeah, so I'm reading from Rolling Stone. He won Best New Artist and three awards in the rap category. And a lot of people at the time were like, hey, Kendrick Lamar should have won. And so mm-hmm. Macklemore, he uh, Instagrammed a picture of a, te- a text message he sent Kendrick Lamar. And this is a quote. He said, you got robbed. I wanted you to win. You should have. It's weird and it sucks that I robbed you. And this encapsulates the white liberal mind because it removes any culpability they have in the theft. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm in this gentrified neighborhood. It sucks that it's gentrified. How did it get like that? Like, I don't know how it got like this. And and this is something I see a lot with like white liberals in the Bay Area. It's like, you know, they have progressive politics, they have radical politics, and they're, they're sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, all that politics, shit, right? Though? I mean, so, they might have the, like, uh, the maybe the social markers, and they may have the language of radical politics. I mean, they, they they have, like, the they have the Black Lives Matter sign on their lawn. That's that is the actually, to me, do. well, that's like, <laughs> when, when a white person has, like, a Black Lives Matter sign or a t-shirt, that immediately indicates to me that's not an ally. I mean, I don't, not well, see, to the extent th- that I even a, believe that, in allies, which I don't, but that's definitely, like, the last th- in the bunch. But, Sorry, the go, reason go why, yeah. yeah, the reason why I brought that up is because I think amongst white liberals, um, because they're so obsessed with the individual, they could remove themselves from whatever culpability they have in the systemic racism that they that they're a part of. So the reason why I mentioned gentrification is that, like, okay, so you can move into a gentrified neighborhood in the Bay Area, which can involve the displacement of working class Black and Brown people who live there. So you can move in because like, oh, it's a nice home. I like the neighborhood. I like the culture, whatever. And then they can be like, yeah, I hate gentrification. It really sucks. But like, what are you doing? Aren't yeah. you Aren't, yeah, culpable yeah. Well, in this process? What do you, who do you think you are? It's also like you, when, when uh, white people are like, oh, man, that was oh, like, they'll, they'll like uh, uh, talk about somebody else and be like, oh, white people. Or like, oh, that right. is so white. Is there anything whiter than this? I forgot it's who like, said this. This this really helped me uh, understand this. What, I think what you're talking about is is that they're they're saying there's someone who said I forgot who this was, but the, the ruling class has they behave as a class, but they don't think as a class. Meaning they don't identify mm-hmm. themselves as part of the ruling class, oh, but yeah, in it's, behavior, it's, uh, they're entirely. Yep. They're entirely mm-hmm. together on the same page. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, but it's, and then when it comes to the the exploited classes, mm-hmm. you pay a lot of lip service to class consciousness, but we always behave. The the you know the exploited the classes always way. behave like totally at odds with it. You know, like there there's no class solidarity uh, in behavior, only in word. But it's completely the opposite. So I think with you know what in that that that's that's a real, that with Macklemore, it's really interesting because they it seems that they're always throwing like you said they're always throwing off themselves from whiteness they're not part of whiteness because they're aware of it and they can disclaim it or they can check it you know (laughs) like whatever they they check it you know which does can i just uh, just say one thing real quick and there's actually like a a really good sort of uh, critique or interpretation of that like the the ability of white people and this is just like a superhuman ability of white people to separate themselves as whiteness or see whiteness as something separate and Mm -hmm. distinct from themselves but uh a lot of this has 
th- a lot of this was covered in uh, this book called Yurugu by uh, Dr. Marimba Ani, oh. where she, yeah. she talks about like the uh, the platonic epistemology, like that is sort of like at the root of uh, European thought, because people see themselves like, you know, the allegory of the uh, the uh, uh, the allegory of the cave. Right. And the, yeah, so Plato, Plato's cave. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So for uh, for yeah. in terms of European thought, a person when they start off with these sort of like uh, first order, um, like these sort of like first order uh, propositions, like they have split themselves bodily from the shadow on the cave. So like they don't think that of the shadow something mm-hmm. distinct from themselves. It's like, but a thing that emanates from you that is you. It is like a it is a um, it is a piece of you essentially. It at least according to uh this like this chapter which she calls matuoso like the the ordering of thought is like but you think of the shadow as something that's separate and distinct from yourself when it's you that's cast in the shadow and then from there you're able to break yourself off and away from whatever the thing is that you need to feel separated from so in terms of like uh race and racial exploitation you feel a separation from these people these people are not you there's something different about them but then also, like, white people have, like, constructed a thing called whiteness, which they're also able to separate from. So they're able to separate themselves yeah. from gentrification because it's like, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. gentrification is so bad. I hmm, wonder what I could do about it. And it's like, and it, yeah. It, it's like, yeah. And it's like they act. The reason why I brought up the gentrification thing is they act like it's just something in the ether. Like, yeah, it's like a, it's like they're yelling at a cloud or something rather than an actual material process that involves people and engaging. And so, you know, like. This isn't to say like, you know, every white person should be banned from Oakland or whatever, but it's like, look, if you're going to, if you're a transplant from like, I don't know, like Iowa or Massachusetts or wherever, and you're working at some like nonprofit job and you want to help like underprivileged youth of color, da 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 da, and like you have all these progressive politics and you're living in a gentrified neighborhood, you have to acknowledge like, okay, yeah, you are participating in this process. You know, and so yeah. from there, you have to start from like, okay, what can I do to change that? Is there a way that I can change this system so that it's not so destructive or just straight up eliminate it? And, that, and that's my frustration is that I encounter a lot of white people like this who, you know, have some sort of like, yeah, I'm living in Oakland. It's like a really good neighborhood, but like, it sucks that it's gentrified. Yeah, I wonder how it got gentrified. Like, did you ever think that maybe you're helping? you're helping to facilitate this process and like what are you doing to reverse that process yeah. like that it never they never that reach whole, that like, level you know, of you're consciousness not stuck in traffic you are traffic you know yeah th- yeah this this like the splitting of the this splitting of the mind and body as though like the mind and body are two separate and distinct things whereas like the mind is simply like produced by the body it's it, it is one and unique with the body but people see themselves for example as like separate and distinct from gentrification they see themselves as yeah. separate and distinct from racism. They see them, themselves as separate and distinct from imperialism. But here's the wild part about that. When the rest of us, like, like when the rest of us actually see it and call it for what it is, like, no, you're just a fucking gentrifier, they lose their shit. When you talk about, yeah, they, you know, yeah. America is an imperial power, when you talk about <laughs> white people as a whole as racist, and you have these racists as something, what, me? What? How, what would yeah. make you think that? I, I've never done anything to you. That's why there used to be this 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 uh, discussion around like how come we can't find um, you know a an ethnic slur that really offends white people the way that the n word offends black people or you know chink offends Asian people and I realized that there is one you just call them white but it only <laughs> like that's that's the ultimate slur is to just straight up call them white and 
They fucking hate that. You could call them cracker. You could call them, you know, uh, whatever. Oh, no, there like, is it doesn't one. matter. They, there they're is, like, ha, ha, ha. But the yeah. second you call them white, they're like, oh, shit. Like, there is one really come, good come on, one. Back, There's one back really, down here. Yeah. Well, because you, like, we, we've had this conversation. Like, you know, the, uh, why is it that, that the white word or the word to use towards white people, the slur, cracker, is like, but it refers to the cracking of the whip. So you're almost like reifying their position of power. And I'm like, but is there, is there an actual word that like demeans them? And, uh, and it didn't it didn't even occur to me, but I'm like, yeah, the Nigerians fucking invented it. Oyinbo. Oyinbo <laughs> means Oyinbo basically means skinless. Like these people don't have. Oh. Not only are they not. It's not that they're white. It's that they don't actually have skin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. You can even almost use that as like a way to refer to like white american culture not really being a culture like it's just shit that they stole from everybody else and reappropriated like it's yeah. not something that really came from them well that, I mean, that's it's, kinda, it, yeah. that is kind of the like their culture is genocide if we're being well yeah, see that's like, why in a way i i, I sometimes feel the construction of whiteness is itself constructed of genocide so if there is a culture that white people that uh, that white people have the culture is genocide that yeah. but i mean th- that's why i feel sometimes almost more comfortable talking about race with white people when they actually are willing to defend whiteness and to Mm. acknowledge that they're a part of it. And like, like I'll admit, like sometimes I actually like really like country music because there is a sort of like white ethno nationalist bent to it where I'm like, see, there's ground here. You know what I mean? I was like listening to some song called like music was taken from us. Yeah. yeah, banjo. Yeah, the banjo's an African the banjo's instrument. Banjo's an African yeah. instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, but uh, honestly, it's like there's there at least is a ground to whiteness there where they're they're mm-hmm. they, you they even have these fantasies of Dixie or whatever, and and they're willing to acknowledge that they are white people, <laughs> that they'll defend yeah. it, versus a white liberal who is like not a part of anything. Like there's no yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just very yeah. difficult to touch ground there. And I think Liberals, for yeah, sorry, Asian people who get sucked into that culture, and in our in our experience, that was called like sort of model minority assimilation. Oh, no, but that way lies death. That's the thing. Like, and not, not just like like, yeah. like 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 actual physical death, but like that way, like there, it's a it's a graveyard of culture because the yes. the ability to like produce the ability to produce things that aren't like part of a formula like the thing is like uh okay there's a tradition to for example like irish and celtic music right i i yeah. i listen to celtic music i i find it fascinating i actually like it right but like as to what it is that like white culture is it's nothing it's just an assemblage like it's basically a grease trap for it yeah. it goes even de- it goes even deeper if you look at the history of flamenco music it's not even purely spanish like flamenco music the origin of film is really a roma it's a, a, um, yeah, the Roma people, and also there's elements of like North African and Arab music. So, but it's flamenco's really uh, associated with the Roma people who are basically seen like as the colored people of Spain. And the way flamenco became Spanish was because when Francisco Franco came into power, he used flamenco as a form of tourism to Spain. So, so even flamenco music is not purely white Spanish, which is why a, lo- a lot of Roma people actually were pissed at um, the singer named Rosalia because they were saying like, she's copying elements of Roma culture that don't belong to her. So you could even see it like in flamenco music that a lot of that, like, and there's even elements of um, like African-American jazz hands in flamenco music. It's really like flamenco is like a real melting pot of different cultures, but the people kind of music. Yeah. Fused together are the Roma. So 
Yeah, so like it, that goes even deeper with whiteness. Like even flamenco's not purely white. It's like a cultural assimilator. It's like I mean, in that sense, it's it's sort of um, like a like a white like a like a cowboy country you know guy is sort of like a guy who sings a little bit like a black blues musician and dresses like a Mexican cowboy. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's yep, uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's many different parts. Uh, th- yeah, there is a sort of like it, you know what I've noticed too is. Um, you know, when with Asian people, when we start discussing things like cultural appropriation and stuff like the 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 conversation quickly turns towards like the right to profit off of it and who gets to sell it and who gets to market it. And I notice what it is, is like it's it's very much stripping. It's it's stripping commodities off of culture, specific mm. commodities off of culture mm. and really sort of like conflating cultural production with culture. So mm. the food, for example, it, right. you know, can be taken or the style can be taken or even the music and the, you know, whatever. But there's no sense of the way of life. There's no sense of the, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, um, yeah. all yeah. meaning is lost. And it's, it's, it's sort of the business of culture that we're really talking about. Uh, and I think that's what frustrates a lot of Asian people when we talk about it is because I've noticed that a lot of Asian people, when we complain about this stuff, we don't actually have a leg to stand on because it's very easy mm. to say, well, you, you know, you don't, nobody owns culture, right? Like you don't get to own how you cook a chicken or how you like, right. you know, fold silk into a dress or whatever. Right. I mean, every, all cultures borrowing and then they'll come up with in, uh, instances where Asian people or Chinese people have, uh, you know, t- used Western culture, so to speak, for our own, you know, adapted to our own use or whatever. So, oh, culture is endless sharing and 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 whatever. But it's all talk, and we don't have a leg to stand on in that because it's like it's true, and it's true because I think we're talking about culture only at the level of commodity, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're not talking about the deeper layers of culture at, in terms of like how we think and consciousness and. And that we never get to that. We're just talking about like. Well, I that's stuff uh, I love talking about all the damn time. Is like you know what mm-hmm. what what are our philosophies and where do our cultures come from? Because, it, like, I have questions. Yeah, I have just questions. Like, you know, why why is it the uh, the 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 Gullah people and Jamaican Fatwa have so many like words and in common, and why is our linguistic cadence so similar? You start asking questions like that, and then it leads you to some really interesting conclusions. But, like. I, I think part of the reason that we get sucked into this like superficial conversation on culture, which really just has to do with, you know, you produced a thing that uh, that I'm very familiar with and people of my culture or my ethnicity who've been doing this for a very long time aren't getting paid. And you are you're getting like uh, you're, you're, you're making bank off of it. And to me, that's like, yeah, I get it, but you're also, and I, you know, I, I wrote a pretty lengthy article on cultural appropriation, trying to sort of like break down for people and what it was and why people were so upset by it. But I think one thing that I probably could have done better is explain that, you know, the, um, the anger over a cultural appropriation kind of has to go somewhere beyond just people are getting paid off of our culture. It has to go to like the, the a, the, the biopower of like the, the the culture industry, like how 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 essential, um, you know, just feeding everything that we own and everything that we can create, uh, everything that we are as human beings, into this machine that spits out this facsimile of ourselves, oftentimes a very ugly one, but then also yeah. the uh, but also like the, the the necropolitical aspect of it, which is that if you consider, for example, like uh, people of indigenous backgrounds as socially dead or even extinct. 
then you can do things like uh, wear a war bonnet to uh, Burning Man or, you know, do like a, uh, an ad campaign for a perfume company or something like that, that, that just draws from like these really sort of exotic and or, in a way like almost Orientalist indigenous aspects. Like that's a conversation to be had. What is it? What is it about your culture that is not only attempting to be processed, but in a sense killed? Like you've, we've removed it from you and then placed it behind the wall garden of advertising. It no longer belongs to you. You don't actually have a culture. And there's actually a really good book by a writer named Thomas King called uh, the um, uh, the Dead Indian, where he, oh my gosh, sorry, no the. Uh, he talks about dead Indianism. I'm, I'm going to have to come back and, and, and teen, you have to clean this one up. I'm so sorry. Uh, sorry. The, sure, no problem. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Let me let's start that one over again. There's a book by a very talented indigenous author. It's called the inconvenient Indian, uh, where he talks about this, uh, mm. the syndrome uh, that exists sort of like in, in white culture called the dead Indian. Like this idea that like, there is such thing as an Indian. There is such thing as a native, but, they hardly exist. They're they're pretty much extinct. So their culture doesn't belong to them. They're, if I can trace some ancestry back and find that I'm like, I don't know, like uh, one 255th Cherokee or something like that, then I get to go wear a war bonnet to, to Burning Man. But then when actual people from nations that these cultural signifiers belong to say, actually, that's like, that's, that's a sacred good. Don't do that. You have the right because a you can you, these people are dead and you're actually more you're more native than they are, um, and then b you understand that in your social location you have much more power than they do. You you can just pay no attention to it whatsoever. And yeah. act- mm-hmm. Sorry, oh, ahead, I mean, Adam. yeah, uh, Andre. The words you mentioned, nation. I mean, this is actually the third rail of the white left because I think in order to, you know, get to to address that conundrum of like. Not just, yeah, because I, I yeah, because I think the layer the the commodification layer when it comes to culture like that's that's just scratching the surface. And and teen, I think you're right. Like there is an actual way of life to any culture, no matter like like anyone you, in any group you get you interact with. Like every community has their own way of life that it's not a bad thing. It's actually good. Like I actually, I mean, I think just just being in the Bay Area, like a lot of my friends were of different cultural backgrounds. And then when I would go to their, their homes or their gatherings, like I could tell like, Oh, this is different, but I never felt like it was a bad thing. I, I always felt like this is cool. I think it should be preserved. It's cool. I like it. Like, and I, I think that that community has a right to preserve it. And I think like the way to preserve it is through, yeah, some form of nationalism, which you know, gets into the our argument that Andre and some of us were having about black nationalism versus other white oh, leftists. God, and I think uh, like, yeah. Well, because they, <laughs> can't, the thing yeah, is like, they can't, they can't imagine yeah. such a thing as nationalism without statism. Like it, nationalism and statism are the very same thing because when, when you have a nation, what they want to do is establish a, uh, a, a you want to establish boundaries of violence with the, uh, the benefit of a state. But the thing that they don't understand is, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of nations in North America. There are three states in North America, but there are hundreds of nations in North America. And so they, they yeah. can't fathom the idea that if we uh, form nations among ourselves, if we achieve liberation and self-determination, does it mean that we set up a quote-unquote ethnostate or do we set up any state whatsoever? No. There are, there are uh, uh, first nations that perhaps do want states. There are others that don't actually want a state and are fine to remain as nations of people. 
and I, that's the very same in in uh, uh, the uh, sort of like the pan Africanist view. A nation of people in North America and a nation of people in the Caribbean are simply a nation, but we are one uh, African superstructure along with the states that exist in Africa. For example, yeah. Waigana, uh, which was celebrating the year of return last year, um, invited Americans to come over to Ghana to sort of reconnect with the culture that uh, that they were violently separated from, but also to offer such a thing as citizenship. Like you may be a uh, citizen of the United States, but you're also you're always welcome as a citizen of Ghana because we are in one nation together. And I don't think they actually yeah. get that concept because uh, a uh, due to show. Well, I, I, maybe they do. I think they do. I think maybe like if you talk to an Irish American or an Italian American, they kind of get it. Um, you know, like an, an Irish, because you know that there's like more Irish people in America than there are actual like Irish people, right? So they identify with with Irishness, even though they may not may, may never have gone to Ireland, but in a sense, like in a way, they're almost a nation unto themselves, maybe an assimilated nation, but a nation nonetheless. But they refuse to yeah. see how it exists for Black people and, and for diasporic Africans. Yeah, I, I want to, res- Adam. I just want to respond to what you're saying because I think it's it's very. You know, about this notion that we all have, like, let's say you grew up around in a very multicultural area and everyone had different cultures and that should be preserved. I agree with that. I would add, though, you know, what I've noticed in my life is that cultural variation around the world, as as uh, as big as it is, you know, my feeling after all these years is actually that it's America, like there is such a thing as American exceptionalism. That America, it's not any particular culture in the world that is unique. I mean, they're all unique, of course, but there's broad similarities uh, among them. I I don't necessarily know how to categorize or describe it, but it's a feeling that it's not the it's not the differences of the culture that matter. It is the way America stands out in the sort of lack of culture that is makes mm. to me America very special in the sense that the way people relate to each other, so let's say in um, China where I go a lot or uh, compare that to say Italy, two countries that were in the news around COVID and everything. I think there's actually a lot of similarities between those two cultures. For example, their reverence for elders and, and things like that, that doesn't necessarily, we don't see it here. Right. Right, and right. Uh, I think that we there is a certain amount of um, there's a thinness to the culture, and we're almost like a post nationalist state, like an, in the sense mm. that there is no national identity that is in any way comparable to what you would find, say, in a country like Ghana or Italy or right. China, even. And those right. are three, you know, three separate continents. Those three countries. Uh, states are different, I think, in their national identity uh, in the same way as, I mean, they're all different. The delta between those three places is the same when compared against America. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm I'm explaining this right, but America is the one that stands out to me for its lack of a unified national identity. Oh, does yeah. the, you know what I'm saying? America yeah, is like yeah. dozens of national identities in a sense. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like you yeah. go to Texas, and I think like that Texas there was a point. Identity. Yeah, and I yeah. think there was a point in American history, uh, probably in the early 20th century, when they were actually confronting this problem uh, straightforwardly. They they didn't necessarily think that melting pot is, and they, of course they were only talking about white immigrants at that time, but that they didn't think that what you wanted to do was to sort of like create a completely new. 
uh, American white identity, which if you look at the, if you look at say the work of like Frank Lloyd Wright was trying to do, was trying to create an architectural grammar for a new emergent white national identity in America that was sort of like divorced from Europe. Uh, he'd rather take from the Mayan cultures or the, from even from the Japanese cultures to create a new Usonian culture and all this stuff. Or did you want to go the route of a more cosmopolitan? And I think a lot of Jewish thinkers ended up on this route was to say that they wanted to maybe preserve national identities. And for example, you know, preserve Scandinavian identity in Wisconsin in, in the Midwest or something or Anglo culture in the in the in New England and uh, maybe Italian culture in 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 um, New York or whatever. Of course, they only limited it to to European immigrants at that time. But I think there was a time when they really, you know, America really was tackling this notion of like what happens to what if we don't have a, a national ethnic identity. But I, I think we chucked all that um, concern to the wind, and I, now we're faced with this sort of issue of like we're a country, we're a state without a national identity. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, two points um, t- to, to piggyback off of what Andre is saying. Um, so I'm, I'm finishing up this article on uh, Pan-African efforts. Um, I had to delay it because uh, COVID-19 really messed up uh, international air travel. So that impacted the trajectory of my story. But um, the African Union actually recognized the African diaspora as the sixth region. Of the African Union. So the African Union has five regions on the continent. So North, West, East, Central, and, and Southern Africa. But they also recognize the African diaspora as the sixth region of the African Union. And they define the African diaspora as consisting of peoples of African origin living outside the continent, um, uh, irrespective of, uh, living outside the continent, irrespective of their citizenship and nationality, and who are willing to contribute to the development of the continent and the building of the African Union, and um, they also refer to the uh, people who, you know, either uh, voluntarily left Africa or um, uh, forced. <laughs> i.e. slavery, right? So the transatlantic slave trade wasn't really like, it was not a voluntary migration, it was a forced migration. So, so, and I think that's relevant, especially when we're talking about black nationalism in a broad sense, because even the African Union recognizes the unique peoplehood of diasporic Africans in the Americas, anywhere from Brazil, which has, Brazil actually has the largest population of Afro-descendant people, I think, in the Western Hemisphere outside of Africa. So there's mm-hmm. Brazil, there's Venezuela, there's Colombia, there's Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, um, Canada, United States. So there is a recognition of of the peoplehood of Afro-descendant people throughout the Western Hemisphere. And even amongst like the diaspora's difference, like African-Americans were different than the Afro-Brazilians who are also different from Afro-Colombians and Afro-Cubans. Like we all have our unique ethnic differences, mm. but we all share like a common national. historical lineage. And yeah. a national, ha- almost a national identity is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, in, 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 in the, that's interesting. Cause in the, uh, the, in the annual, the Chinese president will give an annual 
speech, uh, 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 um, an address to the people of the Chinese nation, so to speak. There's a lot of different mm. words in Chinese for Chinese nation. It's it, you, mm. you know, it, and it depends. They all change in scope, but on the New Year's, it's always the largest in scope, and they always include the diaspora in that. So for mm. you know, you rarely see that. You would not expect that, but yeah, in in in, in if you if you watch, say, the Chinese president give the Chinese New Year's address. There's a specific inclusion there to say that when I say Chinese people, I specifically am including Chinese diaspora around the world into this address. It kind of sounds like that notion mm. of yeah. national identity. Uh, yeah. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think like which uh, you make an interesting point about America not really having a cohesive national identity versus like let's say like France having a cohesive national identity or mm -hmm. Italy or China or any other country. Like, yeah. Parasitism. You know, yeah. So oh, I so think with the, the thing, the, <laughs> the thing, the thing with America, I think there are these different national identities, but I think in terms of when you're talking about actual political power and economic power, it's largely in the hands of, of whites, like white, white people. Yeah. And white yeah. is like a very broad thing because that includes anyone from like, like English, French, German, who previously in Europe had their own different, na their own national identities. But once colonization and the slave trade happened, all those people got mixed up into this white identity. Uh, here's a good example. Robert De Niro, you know, made his career off of playing Italian mobsters, but he's only one quarter Italian. I didn't even know this until I looked it up. He's one quarter Italian. Others like I think like German and other stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, but if hmm. but that actually makes it that's come with a lot of white Americans because they may have like Italian or French or German's last names, but their ancestry is probably mixed with like okay, German, Dutch, French, English, um maybe Irish, Scottish. I mean, even if you look at England, there's like Welsh, there's English, there's Scottish, there's Irish, right? But what, when whiteness is really a colonial identity because it's like, okay, we're going to get all these European people here into this new land and form a new white identity to protect us against Native Americans and slaves. And so I think like – and I think this is why we're – I think this is, is important to talk about this because I think the left was really unprepared to deal with the – Yes. white nationalist far right yeah. and the thing the reason why what they're saying what those guys are really saying is that like you know what this country always belonged to us and with this guy obama it really sent shockwaves into the heart of huge segments of white america that like hey this country that we always thought of as white is going away so we have to find some way to preserve it and then you get someone like donald trump who's basically dog whistling or not even dog whistling just outright saying it that like yeah america's a white nation i'm, I'm gonna preserve it hence harsh immigration policies like even when it comes to immigration like it's very racist because if you look at latin america their immigration policy is the reverse they brought in european immigrants why to whiten the population like that like look it up like branquiamento and blanquiamento Mm -hmm. Brazil and th throughout all of Latin America, they intentionally brought Italian and other European immigrants to basically bolster the white population in particularly Brazil and throughout the rest of Latin America. Whereas in America, it's like, okay, we're going to restrict immigration from non-white countries, like, you know, go back to the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, harsh immigration policies against like, especially now, like a lot of it, the rhetoric is targeted against 
uh, people from Mexico and Central America. And now with COVID-19, now there's a lot of anti-Chinese, anti-Asian sentiment. All that's meant is to preserve a white hegemony in America. So there may be all these other separate national identities, but the, w- w- when it comes to white nationalists and white supremacists, their thing is like, look, we, we're supposed to run shit. We're supposed to run this fucking country. And we're not going to let you... Chinese people, black people, Mexicans, we're not going to let you run this country because at the end of the day, you guys can have your culture. But when it comes down to passing laws, bailouts, the economy, and, and who runs shit, there's a great there's a great clip in um, uh, The Good Shepherd. So it's Joe Pesci's character and Matt Damon's character. And they're having a conversation. Joe Pesci is like, ask, so Matt Damon plays like this waspy guy who helps found the cia and joe pesci he's talking to him and they have like outside and he's like joe pesci's like you know my people the italian we have uh our families and we have the church the irish uh they have their homeland jews they got their tradition and this is what he said even the niggers they got their music like what do your people have and then matt damon's character says we have the united states of america the rest (laughs) of you just visiting yeah. And that and that and that's the mindset of mm. I think a huge segment of the white nationalist uh the white nationalist movement in this country is that like okay you can have your little culture but when it comes to running shit it it's us who runs it. And so that's why I think like when um, uh, Ahmad Arbery got shot like the routine police violence that gets done against black people is meant to reify that he- that white hegemony and white domination. It's not about like white privilege or any of the other liberal shit. It's it's basically about preserving white nationalist hegemony in America. And I, I think the left has to like, you know, uh, come to grips with that because I think sometimes people assume that we're a multiracial democracy. I mean, yeah, in theory, but when it comes to power and hegemony is going to come back to whiteness. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think what you, the, the thing about what the Matt Damon's character said is really interesting because I, I feel my suspicion is that the lack of an ethnic identity, uh, actually causes a lot of panic in people. And I can even Mm. see on the liberal side, Mm. cultural projects. And I think Pixar and Disney as an example is a liberal project of trying to create a mythos for the origin of white people in America. I think mm. you could like you could watch this movie Onward, the one that came out recently, the Pixar movie, and you could see elements of trying to let's agree on some sort of fictional mythos as to where we come from and what kind of people we are and you know things like this. Uh because we you know we, they don't have a history, but like with 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 what you said about the the basis of white power, and I, it's interesting how white power and white nationalism get conflated, because you're right. I think it is a ethnic identity that bases itself around power. That is the origin mm-hmm. of it. It is yep. around power, yeah. and yeah. who yeah. who gets it and who maintains it. And without that power, mm-hmm. they lose everything, right? And I think yeah. that's the difference. Yeah. And I, maybe yeah. that's why they fear um, the idea of a black nationalism is to say these people can can maintain a coherent community and identity and politics even without power. Whereas they seem to be almost, they would be annihilated without it. Yeah. You know, I think there is a fear and I've, I've noticed that in the, in the kind of projects that, that you see white people undertake the cultural projects to try and define a mythos, because I think it's more and more, it's harder and harder to hold on to power um for them 
uh, simply because of demographic change. And I mean, they are all white power, I think, is confronted with serious challenges. You don't think that it is. I don't agree with you, Teen. Um, well, I think it's they. Per- well, it may, it, it, even if not, I think, I think right they do. Now, perce- I think, right now, I think they do yeah. perceive that it is being challenged. Well, I, and that I, mean, those, I think, I think yeah, they have a legit yeah. fear of it. I think. Well, I think there's they, a perception. Of, I mean, how many freaking white genocide memes do we need to see before we accept that there may be a little bit of white anxiety here? But I think that what's yeah, yeah. what's happening right yeah. now in the United States, this gigantic, and I've talked about this, this unprecedented and we've never seen anything like this in our lives in terms of like the fundamental remappings of social relations and social relations to power what i mean by that is like think about the fact that like uh costco just bought its uh last mile carrier so costco is an effect is effectively like considering the kirkland brand costco is effectively a vertical monopoly it's mm-hmm. also the fact that like uh you know labor power is i mean people talk about like you know uh essential workers retailer or retail workers etc being as powerful as they've ever been because we know that if uh, retail workers walk off the job it's going to collapse the economy and, or it's going to collapse like the workplace so they have the leverage but it's also like yes but they also need to eat they also need to pay their bills and they don't want their friends and family to not be able to go to the grocery store and buy food at this time so like there are multiple considerations that people have other than sim- a simple strike or even th- than a general strike. So we're in a bit of like a, uh, um, in a game of, almost like in a game of liar's poker, where like both sides come to the table and these are what they're, uh, for the workers, uh, what they bring to the table is, well, we have the threat of striking. And then for the employer, it's like, well, yeah, but we also have the threat of like the entire economy collapsing and uh, good luck. We're, I'm going to be okay. Uh, my peers are going to be okay, but are you? And then, and then yeah. the third thing is um, this, uh, I'm going to put this. There's a massive amount of people that have college degrees, that have uh, years of experience on their CV, that are respected by their peers. They've done work. They've got a lengthy work history. And they're going to be just as unemployed working at, well, I guess they can't work at Grubhub because that just got bought by Uber. But they're going to be working for Uber or Skip the Dishes or whomever to be able to try and pick up any kind of work. Maybe they go work in an Amazon fulfillment center. There's just the, a gigantic substrate of people that have been hurled down into the lower classes. And for the people that were already there, they're basically like they're cast, they're untouchable, right? So like the, the uh, to, to your point about um, whiteness being threatened, no, right now there is a fundamental reorganization of society so that the people that belongs to that ruling class and the people that aspire to be like them are actually going to be as secure as they've ever been because we're no longer in capitalism. We're in a neo-feudalist state. What that means is that yeah. all of these undesirable mm. classes, it's open game. This is why people can go um, pour acid on a Chinese woman's face or go uh, uh, go on a knife attack against the father and son while they're grocery shopping. Like this is why you're seeing this uh, this breakdown and disorder and this violence, and also why people are wearing masks while they're going to subway with a fucking like, like a I don't know what kind of rifle it was. I'm pretty sure it was a um, uh, I forget what the name of that French rifle is, but the people are showing up with like automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons to subway, and it's like they're they're yeah, they're, mas- yeah. they're masking up I, yeah. this way because it's like they know that they're going to be protected. Though yeah. someone I think we both kind of like is uh, Zizek said something about this once that I thought was re- kind of interesting, at least worth considering here, which is mm-hmm. that real power uh, does sh- should not and need not be demonstrated or ex- exercised in any way. Meaning that my authority should not be challenged. Not, I, I don't. I should just be able to go out. Yeah, that's uh, without Gr- any Gr- arms. Gramsci, that's that's Gramsci, mm-hmm. that's the Gramscian definition of hegemony. Is that your uh-huh. power is so. Uh, recognized that you don't have to exercise violence 
You simply exactly. Yeah, people simply just go my along, presence. Yeah. You know, you know what's going to happen if you fuck with me, right? So I'm yeah, just there's also like you, yeah, but there's also yeah. um, uh, God. There's there's also the uh, I'm, I'm trying not to like reach too deeply into philosophy here. So I'll just say there is also the argument that let's say like a, uh, a benevolent dictator or a monarch or whomever knows that uh, exercising absolute power in the form of like terror. Uh, will cause discontent among uh, certain classes of people. This is why, for example, you have like the uh, the the uh, the, the, the uh, peasants' rebellion in Germany or in Prussia, right? So there's there is only so far that you can push people before it just breaks out into chaos and disorder, and that's true. You you shouldn't have to uh, exercise your power violently. The power should simply be recognized. But at the same time, there is a massive amount of social pressure that's being placed on people that's that's putting many to the breaking point. So it's not just white people that are walking around uh, with semi-automatic weapons. It's also the fact that, like, if you look at the employment graph, you know, from, like, the last year, and then you run into, like, March, April, May, it looks like a vertical line. It's just a wall, right? Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, an estimate of, like, 15%, which was, what like, what set off the social conditions to create that movie Battle Royale, yeah, 15% unemployment is now, like, an optimistic estimate, right? So people are under a hell of a lot of pressure, and there is that, I think, that impetus to start fighting back, or at least to start collectivizing. And there are people, there are white people that are like collaborators with that ruling class that are showing up to say, no, if you step out of line, we will fucking kill you. We just, we just need you to remember that we will fucking kill you. You're saying that they're kind of doing the master's bidding in a way. Or? Yeah. Without being, mm-hmm. without necessarily having it to, to be told to do so. So it's not just, you know, the police, it's not just like the national guard, but it's also like the everyday white people that are like our solidarity is actually over here. Our solidarity is not with you as possible peers in the working class, our solidarity is to our whiteness because we understand the wages that are paid through. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, right. And I think, and and isn't that ultimately kind of what this whole conversation has been about is, is that is, is, you know, when they talk about race over class or whatever, you know, I, on the left, on the white left, I feel like a lot of times when people have conversations that are directed at someone else, that they're really talking about themselves. As a Chinese American, I've noticed this, that a lot of the Mm -hmm. discussion that we're having about China lies and China this and China's an authoritarian country and China Nazis and all this stuff. I'm like, you know, you realize that from my perspective – you all are just talking about yourselves, right? Like, because the Senate all, just pa- the Senate just fucking passed a law that allows the FBI to monitor monitor people's web browsing history without a warrant. Right? Can, right. And, does, and, can China even do that? I right. Yeah, and, China, and it, uh, yeah, yeah. China and it doesn't, doesn't matter. Have, it, it, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like, even if China could or whatever, yeah. like, I'm, it it just proves but, that but this whole conversation was our own flirtation with doing that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think mm. that in a way, mm. when the white mm. left talks about race over class, you know, and they direct that at say black leftists, that they're really having a conversation about themselves and looking at these protesters as yeah. like, how come they're not class warriors? Why do they seem to be? focused on their whiteness why are they clinging to whiteness uh and racial solidarity and not real class solidarity i felt i feel like that whole race over class thing is really a white discussion that's what really matters you know yeah it's a projected conversation it's not a question as to whether it's a conversation or not it's a question as like it's it's almost like it's a it's a tick it's a tell 
It's like you you need to convince right, yourself right. that China yes. is like you need to have like a point by point diagram, like like a like a vertical checklist. You know, check this box or check this box or maybe check both. But you need to run this like this diagram and then total up the number of like I don't know like fascist checks at the bottom to find out who's actually more fascist and the one that wins. It means the other one obviously must be not. But really, what it is, it's like betraying this I think subconscious fear. That America is not hurtling towards fascism. America simply is a fascist state, and they could do nothing in their power to stop it, which is why they have to, to uh, direct their attention and energies to China, because it stops them from thinking, I was what for so many years, my identity was built on never again. Like my identity was built on Holocaust, never again. Rwanda, never again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Yugoslavian state, never again. And They've watched themselves stand idle and even defend the indefensible, like say during the Obama presidency, during the Bill Clinton presidency. They've defended, mm-hmm. so they've now painted themselves into a corner where it's like well, the track that you were on, like the the moral and political track that you were on, landed us in fascism. And if you don't think it is fascism, that's your question. If you do, you believe that Donald Trump is a fascist? Everyone will say yes. Okay, well, is Donald Trump doing a fascism? Yeah, probably yes. All right. So if you think that defeating Trump is the most important thing in the world to do, and you remove Donald Trump from office and you replace it with some other asshole, well, the system allows him to be to to do fascist things. So if you replace Donald Trump with Joe Biden, what system do you have? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you're able to move the current levers and do a fascism, and then you put somebody else in that office, the most important thing to do was to remove Donald Trump. Then what? What type of system is Joel Biden landing the levers of? And I think they yeah, know. I mean, deep one down, that can easily switch right back. No, you know? not one that and, can switch right yeah, back. It's yeah. just it, it's just simply fat. Like, ask anybody in any global South country. Ask anybody in Sudan. Ask anybody in Afghanistan. Yeah, ask anybody right. in Libya. Is America a fascist state? They will tell you absolutely the fuck yes. Ask a Palestinian. Is America a fascist state? Absolutely the fuck yes. Like they do. But the thing is, what what they don't really understand and what they're having a hard time coming to grips with now. This is what happened. Like the violence of. Uh, colonialism, when it is turned inwards towards the domestic population, that is what they call fascism. Amy Cesar talks about this, and he's very blunt in saying yeah. it. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. like you have been Hitlers to the rest of the world all this entire time, and then you you find yourself shocked when a Hitler comes for you. I, I would also add, uh, well, to to add to this, George Jackson in the early seventies, he said, "You must understand that fascism is already here." So I always think of that quote when people are making the lesser evil argument when it comes to voting, because I think people are assuming that fat like fascism is not here yet, but it could be here. And if we just if if Trump wins, it'll definitely be fascist when it's like the real the material reality of America, you know, for a long time has been fascism. And I would also argue that for black people in this country living under white supremacy is like living under a form of fascism like the like in terms of the the kind of institutionalized violence that's routine against black people for generations like i mean the the police the prison system uh the the school to prison pipeline um the you know like racism is a form of fascism. And and I think like people, when people think of fascism, they're just thinking of like one particular model of fascism, which is Nazi Germany. But here's the thing, Hitler got a lot of inspiration from Jim Crow in the United States in oh, order to, in yeah, order, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so and we had a lot of to... national sympathy for the Nazis to an extent. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, like we didn't want to jump into the war because I think we had some sympathies for for the Nazis yeah. and their sort of anti-communist yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like you know, if you look at slavery, and also if you look at just, you know the genocide of the Native Americans, I mean that was, you know, I would say a form of fascism. Um, if you look at that, and then you look at like the system of racial apartheid in this country that lasted for a hundred years. Um, I think like American fascism just looks different than Nazi Germany. But in terms of, I think what Andre is trying to get at is that like, in terms of the actual machinery of the system and the kind of violence it enacts on people. Yeah. Like it's fair to say it's a form of fascism. It's just like in our imagination, when we think of fascism, we have certain reference points, but we don't, we don't take a hard look at ourselves and see like, oh wait, is there a form of, it was kind of like that fucking Jason Johnson guy who said like America's not an oligarchy, but actually like, if you look at America and the level of inequality, it is an oligarchy. And at, at this point, because the middle class has been so fucking squeezed at this point, the level of inequality we have um, Dylan Radigan made a good point about this that like we could basically look like Brazil in terms of like a very, very tiny handful elite of people who have a lot of money and then the masses of people are basically like at poverty or below poverty or near poverty. And I think there was a study that was done a couple of years ago that I think over 50% of the country is at or near poverty. So already in in this country, over half the country is either living below poverty or near poverty. So we're already like, you know, like shit's already bad. Shit's already bad. Yeah. I I, I agree with that. I I guess the question for me Mm -hmm. that I do struggle, I mean, I think this is a real question for me is, Mm. is there actually room for even more debauched, you know, abuse Uh, of power? Is there like, how bad can it get? Because I think, the more I think about it, it's like sometimes I wonder, is 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 even vague liberal opposition to, to that actually doing is that is it actually saving lives that we can't see it, perhaps? Uh. But you know, how how much worse can it get? Uh is is the question like that, that I grapple with because mm. we still are um we still all are capable of a lot more destruction than even what we're doing now. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I and I wonder, um, and I think that there's been a lot of like debate on the left as to like this whole, you know, whether to vote for the Democratic candidate simply to put a containment around the Republicans. You know, I think I, I, I'm on the fence, and because I, I agree with everything that you all have said about America actually being fascist in its um, in in the actual behavior of America. Not just, My only question yeah, is like, what happens when mass the mass just straight up comes off? I, I I am actually kind of fearful. I mean, I have to admit that I do, there's a level to which I operate out of fear. I, I think I fear mm. that. Mm. You know, um, I you know, I think I think um, uh, no, that's a good question. I mean, in general, like I don't like to tell people how to vote. Like I have my own opinions about how I vote, and I haven't. Listen, I haven't voted for a Democratic president since like 2008, so I'm not like mm-hmm. the best person to talk to when it comes to which Democrat to vote for because I just have like no faith in the Democratic Party or the two party system. And and I would go even further to say that like, you know, when it comes to improving the material conditions of Black people, but also like other oppressed people, I think the two party system is actually a barrier. But I think like you know, I I think it is fair to say like yeah like things could get worse because especially one thing this pandemic has shown it like we don't even have like a functioning 
state to take care of people to deal with the pandemic. I mean, countries like Vietnam, countries that America would look down upon, are beating our ass when it comes to flattening the curve. I mean, Vietnam, South Korea, the state of Kerala and India, like countries that we would look down upon. Wasn't Vietnam, didn't they have like uh, transit or they had police going to like public transit and handing people masks? And meanwhile, yeah. in like, I mean, in, in, I'm pretty sure it was in Philly that they like that announced suddenly that uh, yeah, if you can't, if you don't have a mask, you can't be on this bus. And then they dragged a black man off the bus and arrested him and put him in jail, which is like basically like the hotbed of COVID. Like, just the yeah, the, like the simple, <laughs> the worst place to put people yeah, in during a fucking yeah, pandemic. Yeah, basically a fucking death sentence. And it's like that's that's how like the 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 mechanisms of the state are designed for a fascist outcome. So at what point do you just say? This is simply a fascist state, and especially with the the uh, the remapping that's happening right now. I think what people are waiting for is for Donald Trump to say, "Okay, America is now a state for white people," and that's and then the and even then, I think they'll be like, "Yeah, but what are white people really? I mean, are, are we really right? I'm kind of pinkish." Yeah, the thing is, I, I think the thing is, I think people, I think, and this is reason why we should have this conversation is, I think, I think we should be prepared how to fight against it, and I don't think the at least at least in the 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 wider discourse. I think um, guns and rockets, <laughs> yeah, or or just like you know, actual like real political leverage yeah. and like you know, we we need to have a serious conversation about like okay, if there is like this sort of white supremacist fascist element that has a ton of power in this country, and if our goal is like okay, let's actually have like an egalitarian society with you know, if, if those are the things we want, well, I don't and know if that's that, a barrier, I don't know like that the egalitarian society is really the desired outcome. Like even in in, in uh, you know socialist theory, there is no expectation or even a desire for egalitarian outcomes. What's desired though is that uh, people who work have power, like are able to yeah, they are able to exercise power, whether in their immediate surroundings or in their relationship to the state whatever that looks like so i I don't think that's too much to ask for because really all it is like you 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 put all the theory words aside and here's what it looks like wanting people to be able to eat wanting people to be able to keep a a roof over their heads wanting that if they uh have a uh debilitating or uh, a dread health condition that they don't go bankrupt that you know they that they're uh not winning like the uh the the devil's lottery and that when they work, they get the value of their work. The value of their work doesn't accrue to some now trillionaire Jeff Bezos. Like that's these are very simple things to ask under a socialist condition. And the fact that it's it's rejected, not only rejected and opposed, but done so so violently, tells you it's a threat to somebody. Like if I actually yeah. if I actually pay you what you're worth, it is such a threat to my existence that I will exercise everything in my power to stop you. And why? Why do they have this like dread aversion to it? And it's simply this. If you allow people to pursue the, the work that is meaningful to them, if you allow to, them to, uh, to, to, to be fed, to be housed and so forth, you end this competitive environment where people will claw each other's eyeballs out to get a chance for your favor. And that's when the music stops. Like that's when like this game of musical chairs stops. And it's like, wait a second. When the fuck did we let you pick the music? You, you know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> and that is that is a fundamental remapping in the opposite direction of the social order. And I think that's what they actually fear the most. It's not that like America might not be a fascist state. It's that America may not even exist in state form at all. What if America breaks up into multiple confederations again? What if America breaks up into like municipalities? Like it's up to the people to decide how it mm. is that they want their social relations to be arranged 
And maybe America doesn't look like America anymore. Maybe all of the military apparatus that we put overseas, well, it's stranded there and becomes assets of the countries that we've placed them in. Who knows? We have no idea what that looks like. But this desperate, uh, it, well, it looks desperate, but it's really not. It's actually like the exercise of power. But it looks like a desperate and, and, scramble to keep things the way they are. And it's partially because if people were to one day wake up and decide we actually don't have to do this, nobody has any idea what America would look like. And also, like, when it comes to, like, voting and lesser, like, for me, like, I think, um, I just, uh, before I forget, I got to get going in a couple of minutes, but before yeah. I forget, I want to, mm-hmm. I want to make this point. I think one of the, I've been thinking about, um, you know, about the state of the left of the United States and, and, uh, even the, the loss of Bernie Sanders. And I think, you know, in the podcast we did, the Bernie Sanders postmortem, one of my main points um, and I want to address it here before I forget, is that I think the um, quote-unquote left that exists in America, and, and the left is in very broad terms, there's no real organized left, but um, the all that energy was focused on voting for Bernie Sanders and trying to get Bernie Sanders to, to uh, be nominated by the Democratic Party. And I think there are some flaws in that strategy because the Democratic Party as a party structurally as a party is and i think this is becoming more and more people i think particularly from the sanders campaign there are some people i've talked to who are beginning to realize this a lot more is that actually the democratic party the way it's structured is meant to is basically a petty bourgeois and corporate party the republican party is like the white nationalist party at this point like the gloves are off the the mask is off like the Republicans don't really care about tax cuts. They don't really care about like big government because they're totally fine to give massive bailouts to Wall Street and have a giant war machine and a giant and a giant surveillance apparatus and a giant prison system, which and if that's not big government, then I don't know what the fuck big government is. So the Republican Party is just basically like total white nationalism, because that's the thing that really animates their base. Like when you look at Republican rowdies, it's just basically like total white nationalism right and then the democratic party is like okay they're not so much the party of white nationalism but they do want to preserve the the system so it's basically like a sort of moderate republican slash corporate slash petty bourgeois party like those are the interests that the democratic party fundamentally represents so when you have someone like sanders come in and the policies he's proposing he's a direct threat to their interests so I think the left assumed that the Democratic Party would share equal equal power with Sanders when that was never going to fucking happen because the Democratic Party very early on crushed Sanders and like tried to crowd him out and, and make sure that Sanders was defeated. And now we have Joe Biden, another old white dude with very serious sexual assault allegations. That's where we're at. And that's all because the Democrats were hell bent on not having Sanders win. Why? Because Sanders is against Sanders was always against the party's uh, interests, at least the movement that he represented. So there is no way that the left, to the extent that the left exists in America, there is no way that the left was going to get equal political power within the Democratic Party machine. And so I think what so so now that that strategy has been proven, like you know, that Democratic Party entryism is flawed because. The Democratic Party machine reacted the way it was going to react anyway, which is to crush any kind of progressive, populist, social democratic forces. So now the end result is like, okay, well, 
when it comes to the election, okay, if people want to vote for Biden, fine. If you don't want to vote for Biden, fine. But the real thing is like, okay, what the fuck does the left do? And I think the left, what it should do is think seriously about like building actual political institutions to actually enact worker power and power for the people. Like in, in, a, in a real sense, power for the people, not in a slogan, but actual power. And at, at this point, I don't, I don't really see much of the left uh, doing that. And I think like, you know, even when it comes to race, I don't even see black liberals doing that because no. it's all assimilation. Oh, black liberals like, have there's no, no answers whatsoever. They're still on their hobby horses about like, what if Elizabeth yeah. Warren was the nominee or what if Kamala Harris was the nominee? She was never going to win. No, no, Warren was not, never going to win. No, <laughs> none of them were, but that's, but they're just on their hobby horses and they think that like their chances yeah. were spoiled by the, by the energy that was redirected into the Bernie Sanders campaign where it's like, but these people don't fucking like you. There's no way. But uh, the, yeah. the, the, the reason that there's, I mean, there is no real left in the country. Like there's, there's no like left party. No. It's, it's uh, like uh, Julius Nureri said, the fellow that I mentioned earlier who had that theory of Ujamaa, because um, uh, people were upset that uh, Tanzania uh, was a one party democracy. And he says, well, I mean, the, America is also a one party democracy, but in typical American extravagance, they have two of them. <laughs> so th- there, there is, there is no ostensible left party. They both like sort of cater to the, the the same, or both parties cater to the same moneyed interest. And I, I mean, I'm not an American, but take so take this for what it's worth. I am, like I said, uh, a wobbly too, and I, I do believe in people power. And there's only really three ways that you can like um, exercise power in any sort of like uh, state citizen relationship. Uh, one is to have money two is to have guns and three is to have people to have bodies. Well, because we are witnessing this fundamental remapping and everyone's fucking broke. We know that we don't have the money. We know that, I mean, there are many guns in America, but the, uh, the most powerful of them belong to the U S military and police apparatus. So that leaves that out. So three is you have people, you have bodies, but the problem is uh, now because of the uh, the lockdown and there are going to be there are going to be continued civil restrictions especially on the right of assembly i mean we just know that this anything that threatens the ruling class they always find they will always find a way to make it dangerous to exercise that power and right now essentially there is no ability to voice dissent there is no ability to exercise the political power of dissent so maybe it yeah. means you got to break some fucking laws. I don't know. I have I have no idea what that looks like. But there's got to be a way to actually use the amount of people and the amount of like discontent and upset right now towards a political project because getting at it through the electoral process is a dead end. We've already seen how it's a dead end. So you know if they yeah. if they yeah. if they're not if they're not uh, you know if they're not okay with it through the electoral process, well I guess it's just direct action in it because we're in the middle of a class war and we're getting our asses kicked. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's it's been a great conversation. Uh, Adam, I know you g- got to go. Um, I can share yeah. my last closing thought as from the Asian American perspective uh, to the extent that we have a tradition in America. It is being comfortable with the idea that we have no power. We're, pow- we're a powerless minority. And but yet, on the other hand, you also have to plan for the future. And I think from my perspective and the, the, the way I talk with my Asian friends about this, it's almost to me, I feel like because you know, Asians have so little power in any of those three dimensions that um, what we really have, what we're really seeing, I think, is the control, is the demolition, I think, of a lot of these power structures because I don't believe in the stability of it. And I think, for example, with the lockdown, the lockdown 
is, I think, posing more of a threat to capitalism's operation than it is to working people. I think it's it's it has it really had really yeah. bad effects on working people. Yeah. But I think at the same time, we have started finally to see organized labor movements arise out of this, mm-hmm. like what Chris Smalls has been doing with Amazon, that would not have been possible without COVID, right? So I think that I think that it is worth at least from my because because we can't like we we are we, we are kind of powerless. It is important sometimes to view how does the quote opposition how do they view this crisis? What are they scared of, and what do they think is going to topple them? Mm, you know, and yeah. I don't think that they're always so secure in their power. And I think part of it is also to see the like how do we con- what is the controlled demolition of these of these structures? Because we, I think uh, yeah, I think actually I saw a hashtag on Twitter, and I don't want to keep us too long here because mm-hmm. I know we both got to go. But uh, I did see a hashtag yeah. on Twitter that said "R.I.P. Capitalism," and I'm like you have no idea what you mean by that, do you? People think that like capitalism is just like this gigantic wounded like lumbering beast that is going to like fall and die where it, where it falls, and mm-hmm. no, that's not. It's actually giving birth to another type of social relations which uh Jordan mm, yeah. Dean called mm-hmm. neo uh, feudalism and there there is an intention for capitalism to die maybe the system wasn't meant to stick around forever but the idea uh that there is a ruling class that accrues the value of labor is not necessarily unique to capitalism it is just a, a different form of it it's it's, right, it's the right. form of it that took place uh, after the birth of the market economy now what mm-hmm. is there there is simply consumption and nothing else you may consume and we'll pay you if we deign to do so. Now, does what does that mean for the market and for the economy? Absolutely the fuck nothing. Because right now when I see, uh, you know, uh, newspapers talking about, well, there's an economic recovery right around the corner, just buy and hold, buy and hold. This is pump and dump mm-hmm. talk. This is basically like, let's just extract the last bit of value that we can out of you, boost yeah. up the market a little bit, sell it at its peak, and let the fucking thing collapse. And guess what? When it does, we hold all the cash. And we can do whatever we want after that. And the thing is, like, is it important in a uh, relationship of power that we have right now? Is it important that people live? No, you don't actually need all of this biopower in a post-industrial economy. You don't necessarily need all of the biopower for all of the people that exist. Do all of the people need to be fed? No, a lot of them can just die. So I don't know what this looks like. I mean, I think we need to see it, though, right? Like, I think the first step is to uncover just how far it will go. In terms of exploiting labor to the point where we are literally watching Amazon saying, well, fuck it. Some people got to die. I don't, I don't know. You know, like, I mean, I, I think until we see that happen, uh, it doesn't flip on the switch. I don't know where it, what happens from here, but I do think that from what I've seen, the abuses of capitalism have become more apparent under yeah. COVID than was before. I think that as is at least the starting point for something. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that you got to at least say that the visibility of the abuse now is undeniable. And now we have a moral question in front, like properly posed to people. Yeah. You know? And I, I want, yeah. And I, so, I want to, yeah. uh, bef- before I leave, I, I do want to, um, cause I do think like there were a lot of people in a Sanders campaign who were new to politics and, um, were basically shut out from basically felt the brunt of like this late capitalist neoliberal hellhole we've been living in, um, you know, at least since post 2008, um, although the, the roots of it, you know, you can trace back to Reagan or Carter, but, um, so, so, you know, and I, I think like, um, I don't, I don't want to sound too harsh uh, or like I told you so against people in the Sanders campaign. I don't, I don't, I want to make sure that that's not how I'm coming across, but I do think, um, 
that the uh, the foot soldiers basically because I do think like a lot of the the reason why Sanders galvanized so many people is because even pre COVID the middle class was being just shrunk, 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 shrunk down to like a, 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 you know, tiny speck. Right. And people were feeling just the hell of like this Silicon Valley tech app gig economy that pays just, you know, fuck all when it comes to wages, right? So I think people were already feeling the brunt of late capitalism, which fed a lot of the fervor behind a Sanders campaign. And and one of my frustrations with the campaign, not the people who were the base of Sanders, is that like I think the the because so much energy was put on electoral politics that now that it failed, like all those people are just pissed and are <laughs> in lockdown with nothing to do when if there were if there was like okay what are we gonna do outside of sanders i think the left would probably be in a better position than it is now and um so i don't think it's really the 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 fault of um of uh uh of the of the you know new newly energized base of sanders but i do think like you know at least in lefty media uh i think there are too many lefty media types who were just kind of um uh, little too rosy about sanders and not asking like you know more critical questions about like okay what happens if sanders loses like where does the where does the left go like where does this populist movement go like we have to find some way of building power Mm. so and and also like a lot of the political resources went into the sanders campaign not into building other organizations that were doing important work um so yeah i i want to uh just just uh address that because I, you know, I've, I've heard people who, you know, put a lot of time and energy in a Sanders campaign and, you know, seeing him drop out and endorse Joe Biden, a lot of people are pissed and yeah. I get it. Like it, it makes total sense. Like, yeah, you put all your energy because you truly believe that Sanders is going to do something, which makes sense because Sanders was really the only thing the left had in America. Mm-hmm. And now he's endorsing Joe Biden and he's dropped out of race. And like, it, especially when it comes to these bailout bills that are just shelling out more and more money for wall street, like Sanders isn't really like p- putting as much of a fight um, as before. So I think like, you know, we're in kind of like, I think a post Sanders left, like, okay, what, what does the left do independent of Sanders? Um, Cause especially now, like the times are so, uh, like th- th- things are really, really like, <laughs> We're in deep shit. I forgot whatever metaphor I was going to, but we're, we're in deep shit. So yeah, but we have to change our approach. You, you know, the, you, know yeah. you know, the notion of uh, shock, you know, the shock doctrine, right? Shock, shock yeah. capitalism and how capitalism encroaches and expands in moments of, of crisis. And I wonder if actually what we need is a sort of shock leftism, right? Is like mm. a leftism that, 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 that takes advantage of crisis as, as we see the seeds of now. Right. And to embrace yeah. the notion of chaos and this this Maoist idea, right? Like all you know, everything under heaven's in chaos. The situation is excellent. Is like you maybe maybe the left cannot make any advancements unless there are moments like this where we have stark, clear uh, you know antagonisms, violent antagonisms between uh, workers and and their bosses, like we're seeing with the meat packers and we're seeing with Amazon workers and even, even we're seeing with healthcare workers, the naked exploitation of them for all to see. I think that should be a, a, um, a strategic opportunity for left is, is, is how I feel. At least my sympathies are on the line when I see it 
for I, sure. I agree. So, um, I agree. And that's a great moment for me to bounce out because I yeah, gotta go. Yeah, yeah. No, we're uh, at three hours, so it's a, it's an amazing conversation, guys. I really yeah learned a lot. Um, so yeah, yeah Andre. Yeah, Andre. Thanks for putting it together. Man. Oh, 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 oh,